Welcome to Between the Gutters, the podcast where we talk about the stories within the panel. Today, we've got another very special episode for you. I'm your co-host, Drew Tan, and I'm with Albert Lamb. Here we and go. we have our guests, Shanus. My shirt's falling off. <laughs> and we got Zach. I am fully clothed, thank you. <laughs> so Shanus and Zach are back with us. In our last episode, we talked about our favorite uh, science fiction comic books uh, that we recommend. Today, we are continuing down a path of more recommendations. This time, a different uh, subgenre, uh, a more specific subgenre, I should say. And, and what we're going to talk about today is post-apocalyptic comic book recommendations. So what do you guys, uh, well, f- first of all, before we uh, get into our recommendations, we should probably define what post-apocalyptic fiction is. So Albert, what do you got for us? According to Wikipedia, post-apocalyptic, uh, post-apocalyptic and apocalyptic fiction is a subgenre of science fiction, science fantasy, dystopian or horror in which the Earth's technological civilization is collapsing or has collapsed. The apocalypse event may be climactic, such as a runaway climate change, astronomical, such as an impact event, destructive, such as a nuclear holocaust, or resource depletion, medical, such as a pandemic, whether natural or human-caused. Oh, man, I don't even know this word. Eschatological. such as the logical is there a c in there oh esco okay eschatological (laughs) such as the the last judgment second coming of ragnarok or more imaginative such as a zombie apocalypse cybernetic revolt technological singularity dysgenics or alien invasion the story may involve attempts to prevent an apocalypse event deal with the impact and consequences of the event itself or it may be post-apocalypse post-apocalyptic, set after the event. The time may be right The time may be right after the catastrophe, focusing on the psychology of survivors, the way to maintain the human race alive and together as one, or considerably later. Often including that the existence of pre-catastrophe civilization has been mythologized. After apocalyptic stories often take place in a non-technological future world or world where only scattered elements of society and technology remain. Various ancient stories, including the Babylonian and Judaic produced apocalypse, uh, including the Babylonian and Judaic produced apocalyptic literature and mythology, mythology which dealt with the end of the world and human society, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh, written in 2000 to 1500 BC. Recognizable modern apocalyptic novels had existed since at least the first third of the 19th century, when Mary Shelley's *The Last Man* was published. Uh, however, this form of literature gained widespread popularity after World War II when the possibility of global annihilation by nuclear weapons entered public consciousness. I just have a quick comment. I like how in the Wikipedia article, that first paragraph, um, it, after that, that semicolon part says, or more imaginative, such as a zombie apocalypse, cybernetic revolt, and so forth. Yeah. And I'm just thinking to myself, is that at this point imaginative anymore, having had like like seven different Terminator movies and like who knows how many different zombie um, <laughs> stories. Yeah. Maybe they were speaking in relative terms. <laughs> That's true. I guess, I guess the imaginative uh, 
in comparison to something that uh, is based in, in like actual science, I suppose. Yeah, right. No, I, I figured that was the intent. I just, I just thought that phrasing was, was pretty comical. In, in uh, we'll, we'll have to uh, get on the Wikipedia site and, and uh, update the entry then and fix it up. <laughs> so was there anything else in that uh, description that uh, stood out to you? The thing that, that I felt uh, like I was sitting in first grade class learning how to pronounce words again. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought it was interesting uh, how it brought up uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh as one of the earliest works of apocalyptic literature. Yeah, agreed. It's not something that I've actually ever read. It's, I feel like it's something that I've always been aware of, but I didn't actually know what it was about. Um, but apparently it's an apocalypse story. I mean, I've heard of Gilgamesh, but I, I even, I myself have not read the full epic. Have you read it, Zach? Yeah, there's a part in there that talks about, um, actually, oddly enough, that talks about a huge flood, a gigantic flood that that apparently destroys the world, hence the apocalyptic part. Um, that piece of the epic is often compared to uh, the flood from the Bible that God sent to destroy uh, humanity. Um, there are some some really... I don't want to say unsettling, but really uh, direct parallels between the two to this mm -hmm. day. Like I said, I'm not a scholar as far as this stuff is concerned. So to this day, like I still am not quite sure, like kind of, you know, like what came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Because yeah. there's some arguments um, in scholarly circles that that story influenced the one in the Bible. And then there's other stories, likewise, that the Bible somehow influenced that one. Um, I guess it's a it's a case of figuring out, I don't know, by dating somehow, like which one was was produced first. Uh, but even that is a topic of debate. So um, it's just kind of hard to nail down. But there are enough similarities between the two that people always kind of wonder if one was lifted from the other. And it's also often raised as a point of comparison, you know, to say that, um, hey, look, this, like most religions are the same because they all have um, kind of similar, similar mythology or similar themes that pop up in the mythology. Um, most ancient religions too, by the way, do have some sort of uh, eschatology or some sort of like end of the world scenario. So yeah, I mean, the apocalyptic, uh, storytelling as far as the mythos is concerned um, is really not a new thing at all. It's, it's almost as old as humanity itself. But I think in terms of the post-apocalyptic aspect of it and sort of kind of to bring it around to what we're more familiar with, um, the aspect of imagining it as what happens after the decline of our own civilization or how we would, we would apply science or science fiction technologies looking forward into the future, um, sort of combining the apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic literature with sci-fi aspects, which I think we're more used to seeing. Um, I think that may be like a more recent development than just the apocalyptic storytelling itself. So yeah. I guess I'm curious then is that if you think about it in the Old Testament, the, the great flood was an, a 
apocalyptic event. So wouldn't that make the rest of the Old Testament afterward kind of a post-apocalyptic story? Yes, it would. It absolutely would. Well, the, the interesting thing, if we just think about the word apocalypse, though, right? It's, 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 uh, it, we get that word from a, a Greek word, and the or actual Greek word literally means uh, revelation, right? So like in the Bible, the, the New Testament book, uh, the book of Revelation is, is actually um, re, uh, apocalypse in, in Greek. I think it's uh, apocalypsis or something. I forget exactly how you pronounce it. Um, but it, it's just interesting because it, it literally means uh, revelation. But I think for most people in general, when we think of the apocalypse, we don't think about a revelation. We just think about uh, the destruction of the world and, or the end of the world. Yeah, so actually that is a really good observation because I think we, by association, that word has come to mean something else in most people's minds than it originally was supposed to mean before. Um, for instance, there's a lot of words in Shakespearean literature that the word is the same as the ones that we use now, but the meaning uh, back then was totally different. Yeah, so I guess we kind of see how uh, language evolves over time and, and like just, I guess the way that people think of certain words or associate them in a certain way, it kind of becomes more uh, prevalent than what the word originally means. Because I think even now, if you look in a dictionary and look up the word apocalypse, I'm pretty sure like the first definition would be um, like about the destruction of the world or, or the end of the world or something. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's all some pretty interesting background um, about the concept of uh, apocalyptic literature. And one of the things that Zach brought up that um, I also wanted to uh, bring back uh, to you guys was, I think, Zach, you said something about how apocalyptic literature has been around pretty much since the dawn of storytelling, but uh, post-apocalyptic fiction is something that's probably uh, a more relatively recent development. So what do you guys think about that? I was actually going to comment on that a little earlier. Um, I remember I took an English class that had a pretty interesting take on it where um, they were talking about stories in the post-apocalypse, and I think we were reading Waiting for Godot, and it's really interesting because I think when most people think of post-apocalyptic, they tend to look at something like, you know, Terminator or Mad Max or something like that, at least from a like pop culture perspective. So, um, you know, even the definition uh, that we were provided by Wikipedia tends to make it sound more like you know, the fall of civilization and, uh, you know, the story of survival in within that period. But uh, the class that I was taking mentioned that, um, that the idea of the post-apocalypse post -apocalypse doesn't have to be this, this thing that goes out with a huge bang. It's not something that necessarily has to have a lot of explosions. Uh, and it goes back to what you mentioned earlier, where apocalypse kind of means, uh, or the root of it event, uh, originally meant revelation. So what um, my professor was telling or was discussing was that someone can have an event in their life that is just so life altering that it is, 
you can that it is post-apocalyptic in the sense that it is it is the end of an era in their life or in their development and it is living in that time period after that so um yeah so i've always been fascinated by that idea especially with um something like waiting for godot which i don't know if everyone necessarily considers that post-apocalyptic i think that's one of those plays that's kind of up up in the air it's um so for anyone that doesn't really know it it's it's a play about two people that are waiting at like it's not a bus stop but i forget what it is they're just waiting at this place and they're just constantly waiting for godot to show up and it's it's kind of absurdist dialogue because it's I'll be honest, on the face of it, it's kind of a boring read and it doesn't necessarily make the most sense. But um, I remember my, yeah, my professor was saying, if you look at it through the filter of something like the post-apocalypse, um, which some um, academics have uh, proposed, it's, yeah, it's just, it, it, yeah, it offers this perspective of what it's like living in the end of the world where nothing where we all assume that the end of the world is this great big event but what happens if the world continues going after that so um yeah i i yeah, i was always kind of uh, interested in that idea yeah that's actually a really um fascinating take on it uh while you were talking albert it made me it brought my mind back to uh, a book called Night, written by Elie Vassell. Um, it's, uh, it's about a Jewish man who survived the Holocaust camps uh, in World War II. So for him, I mean, according to what you were saying, for him, that was sort of his, his post-apocalyptic event. Yeah, yeah. yeah so his, absolutely. Yeah, so his whole, the whole story basically was him describing what happened to him. Like there was him before he went in uh, and basically like, him surviving that and then what his life was like dealing yeah. with it after he, after he came out of it. Yeah. Yeah. So it, I, I think it's a good um, alternative to just the presumption for anyone coming into this, who's going to presume that post-apocalypse is going to be, you know, something like the Terminator or the Road Warrior or the Matrix or whatever. Not that those aren't fun stories to hear, but it's it's definitely food for thought. Yeah, so I th with Drew's question about why, like that Wikipedia presents this idea, like why is post-apocalyptic fiction more prevalent or became more popular in the last century versus the whole time since apocalyptic stories have been around? I, I think it's because I mean, I can't prove this. I'd have to like probably go and ask a person in the in the field of history and, and probably sociology too. But I think up until the near modern era, I would say that most people were fairly religious, spiritual, or devout in some way. And I think the idea of an apocalypse was going to be divinely orchestrated and there would be the revelation, so to speak, and then the post-revelation process. So the stories of what would come after were kind of like taboo. Like we don't talk about that per se in the sense of that's not a story for us to tell. That's a story that we'll experience when God brings that about for us. Um, and I think just the idea of a man-made catastrophe, just, I, I don't think that was 
I don't think that was in the forefront of anybody's mind because aside yeah. from battles that raged every now and then, same part for course, it wasn't world devastating. And that also, I think the sense of what the world was really only came to fruition after I think adventures into the, to this new frontier of, of yeah. ships coming off from Europe and, and, and coming into what's now North America and South America, our notion of what the world is enlarged and it took time for us to understand I think a few centuries to comprehend what I meant to the world. And then comes, you know, 1945 and we drop two nuclear bombs to Japan and everybody's eyes just open up and their mouths drop and they're like, oh, uh, we can bring about the apocalypse. We could destroy um, ourselves. We destroy ourselves. And I, I think people's, and I think fear is oftentimes a good motivator for, for stories and, yeah. and asking questions. And I think that's what propelled a lot of that forward is this idea of what could be. And also our better understanding of science and medicine um, really is in the past century. Um, like diving to genetics, understanding how we can manipulate and create our own diseases and so forth. You know, for example, the coronavirus, you know, people are debating whether or not, it's, you know, you know, baked up in, uh, in some sort of lab in, in China. So I, I think with more science coming out there and people liking the what's called popular science, taking that and rolling with it, I think the idea of what are the options of how we could end our own world, just, you know, just in a bunch of different branches. So I think more just in, in the middle social attitude and, and understanding of what, what, what the world is and the, the power that we now realize we have to maintain it or destroy it. Yeah, makes sense. That's that's yeah. a good point about, uh, especially what you said about people's fears uh, being a, a driving force for imaginative or uh, creative fiction, mm -hmm. right? It's like very a very true point because a lot of this stuff is like, yeah, we we developed uh, nuclear bombs, and it's like, wow, we we really do have the power to. Um, cause crazy devastation on our on our planet and and thousands of lives um, at a time and that that's like some pretty heavy stuff to deal with in reality and when you just amplify that with the lens of fiction then it goes from like having a couple of nuclear bombs to like every country having a stockpile of weapons and what happens if the worst uh, of humanity's nature takes control and yeah I mean that's pretty much every nuclear holocaust story that there is. Uh, and then you got things like uh, zombie stories and, and uh, virus-related incidents. Um, so, Which yeah. I think also stemmed from people's lack of understanding what nuclear radiation does. I think a lot of the ideas of, of zombie stories emanated from people worrying that if we get radiated, we might be mutated or something might happen to us that would make us inhuman. So I, I think a lot of like, I think all it can be. I think all of it can be driven back to the fear of we don't know what nuclear war is. All we know is that it'll just f shit up for the whole for all of us. In some yeah, way. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's not gonna be like Fallout where we're gonna have to deal with mutants and stuff. I think we're just <laughs> dead. If we're not yeah, dead from the blast. If you're that mutated, you're probably dead. Yeah, it'll it'll just be radiation poisoning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which cancer. I was going to say, which, by the way, is, is not a good way to go out at all. I mean, 
even if you're somewhere in the vicinity of a neutron bomb when it goes off, it just essentially rips up your DNA. It's it's horrible. It basically yeah. like an awful death. Well, on that pleasant note, what do you guys enjoy about post-apocalyptic <laughs> fiction? <laughs> Why do you gravitate towards this subgenre? Um, you know what? I think it's it's pretty interesting why, or not why, but how in recent years, especially a lot of people have gravitated towards it. Um, I, I do have a fascination with observing people and this might not necessarily, this is, doesn't necessarily answer your question as to why I personally enjoy it. But I, I feel like part of the reason that people as a whole enjoy it and why it's gotten popular in recent years is um, I don't know. There's something to the idea that modern civil society is, I guess, kind of boring. <laughs> like when you work a, a, like a pretty stable nine to five job and it, yeah, this was a, a theory that I heard and I, I thought it was pretty interesting, but when, when your average person works a, a run-of-the-mill nine-to-five job and they basically have a routine that they go to on a daily basis. Um, the idea of upending all of that does have a certain appeal, especially if you hate your job and if you hate the monotony of life. This idea that you can kind of hit the reset button on your whole life and you can be this thing in this post-apocalyptic world that you know, your potential is fully unleashed for you to be the warrior that you always were because you were not built for civil society. Um, Unless you're dead in the first wave of the apocalypse. <laughs> well, but that's what I would tell all these people exactly. that tend to, you know, want to live up in the hills and want to be part of a militia or something because they think <laughs> that that's what they're going to do. Like, uh, so I've never personally adhered to that idea. I just... I just like it as good fiction and I understand that it's escapism, but um, in regards to the idea of why it's become so popular in recent years, I do think there's something to that theory that there are, are a lot of people that feel that way, not to get on a soapbox and go on a weird little rant here, but even those, even, you know, some of these militia people or these survivalist types, there, there's a part of me that looks at them and I'm like, I think you kind of revel in this a little more than you should. There, There's something about you that is secretly enjoying this, even if you don't want to admit it. You want to believe that there's a conspiracy or that, you know, society can fall apart around you so that you can live out. So essentially you're LARPing you know except you're <laughs> buying real guns and you're buying real ammo and you're putting the rest of us in a little bit of danger when you decide to do something stupid <laughs> live action role players i never thought of that in yeah, live action role with, players with uh, live action people. ammunition yeah i like i i know it's an extreme comparison to go from larping to that but that that is a thought that i have had where it's like these some of the extreme cases of this are people who stock up on ammunition, stock, and they build a bunker for themselves, and then they train out in the wilderness. And it's just like, okay, like, I get it. Like, if, if things go bad, you want to be able to survive. But, like, I, 
I don't know. I maybe I don't. Maybe I'm naive in thinking that that's it's going to actually go down that way. But <laughs> also, the question is like, if things do go down, like, are they going to be near their bunker to to go and do those drills? They're going to be like somewhere in the midst of, <laughs> of mass civilization where. Wait till I drive for three like, hours and then city. you'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Wait till my three-hour drive. I'll you show you. Them, you know, in the woods or like doing their whole like training with the bunkers and doing these drills. And my mind was thinking, huh, so when we do fire drills, we're all just LARPing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, okay, the difference between a fire drill and something like that is I, I've yet to meet someone who was so into fire drills that they were like, yeah, man, we got a fire drill. This is so cool. <laughs> they actually role play like the, the panicked victim trying to go down the stairs calmly. Yeah, I mean, like that, a fire drill, I understand. That's, you know, preparedness training. Okay. But, you know, if I for meet that one actually, guy. <laughs> for something that actually might happen on, exactly. uh, in the scale of our lifetime. Yeah. Uh, I like if I meet that one guy who's got you know his anti shark repellent, anti <laughs> zombie shark repellent. Uh, I'm probably gonna keep a wide berth from that guy. <laughs> well, hey, if, if Batman has some, then we should all have some. That's true. That is true. <laughs> if it's good enough for Batman. <laughs> if there's a 1% chance of being hacked by a shark, we have to take it as a guarantee. <laughs> An absolute certainty. Absolute certainty. Yeah. Even well, if Zack Snyder has taught me anything, it's math. <laughs> If there's a 1% <laughs> chance that 2 plus 2 equals 5, then it might as well be a 100% chance. 100% <laughs> true. <laughs> Those were, that was what I put on every one of my SAT answers. <laughs> I just wrote it a thousand times. Uh, that's there's how you a 25% chance because there are four options on here. <laughs> yes, but Albert, 25% is not 1%, so it's not guaranteed then. It has to be exactly. It has to be exactly one percent. Exactly. Um, so I can speak for myself. The truth is, I actually am not particularly gravitated towards apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic stories, in the sense as a genre. I'm more intrigued by them, just to see how writers tackle the pseudoscience of what leads to those catastrophes. Um. And I, I think you can lump um, apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic stories into those two camps. One where the author tries to give some sort of scientific explanation and actually does try to do that. And that induces a lot of laughter on my part because they don't know <laughs> the science that would even make sense for that to like, to, to even make sense to, to be put there. And I just, I'm just like shaking my head. I'm like, okay, that's entertaining. Um, also, to, and also just also to see like how they would handle like um, hypothetical scientific ideas like time travel, which even though it's not possible, the idea is that if you have like what's called a grandfather loop, a, a, a time loop that closes on itself that, you know, that's perpetuated over time and ad infinitum, um, how they handle that or the idea of like going into the quantum aspect of like parallel universes and if you time travel, what you've really done is just create a new branch of, of reality, a new, a different separate all, you know, alternate reality. Um, so I, I watch it mostly, sometimes, really a lot for that to see how do the writers, if they, do they first choose to tackle that direction and how do they try to do that? Um, and then there are stories where they kind of avoid that whole situation and, and it, they, they treat it as merely a device to, to create the setting for exploring um humanity from that sense of 
what do we do when we are, are in essentially a no win situation? Like things have, are, there's, there's almost no chance of recovering what we had before. How do we respond and how do, how do different people, um, cause how do we capture the different sense of personalities and attitudes about this environment for us? Um, so I don't really care for post apocalyptic stories. I care more that if somebody says this is a story where the writer does a good job with offering characterizations and convincing you that this is a the a plausible reality in the situation, I'm drawn to that. Otherwise, I'm just like I'm just looking to be humored by the the bad pseudoscience that, that, that <laughs> that's thrown into the to the mix. Always the physicist and mathematician, Shanus. That's why I just want some comedy so sometimes, you know. <laughs> and it's like as horror. Oftentimes, it means oh, that's just comedy cloaked up. <laughs> what about you zach do you have an affinity for post-apocalyptic fiction uh i don't know if i go so far as to describe it as an affinity i do have an appreciation for some stories that i run across i don't i wouldn't say um it's a genre that i'm attracted to like i am science fiction um sci-fi i think at the moment is kind of my bread and butter that's probably Actually, it's definitely what I probably read the most of. Mm -hmm. um, although I do read some other things. Kind of a few of the draws about uh, post-apocalyptic stuff, and some of it sort of goes back to what you guys were just saying a few minutes ago. Um, in, in a sense, uh, I guess one of the big draws for me is the speculative aspect of it and how that ties into the more, the more primal aspects of our nature. I mean, there's always kind of a tension between that um, that tendency to look for, I don't know, that just like self-preservation versus that drive for self-destruction. And there's kind of a tension between the two. Um, and I think post-apocalyptic literature sort of winds up exploring that um, a lot of times and, and looking at how that might look in a context that sometimes is not too far removed from now. And then a lot of times, you know, maybe it can be like far in the future or whatever, but mm -hmm. there's always this sort of like forward looking speculative aspect to it. And I do find it fascinating that there's this sort of uh, morbid fascination with, with the spectacle of, of struggling with mort mortality, which is like, again, it's a very primal thing that's sort of like, subconsciously built into all of us kind of the flip side of some of the things that albert was saying like with the preppers and stuff for example um is that we live in a society that i think most of us it's safe to say um in the back of our minds we know that it's not sustainable we know it won't last forever no one knows exactly when it's going down and i would wager a guess that the majority of us don't expect it to all end in a gigantic fireball like tomorrow or next week but you know we know sooner or later um just like human beings i mean nothing lasts forever and any system that you come up with uh also has its time and so just kind of you know there's always the question of what's going to happen right we again it's one of those those very old very human uh existential questions to ask um you know what happens to us? Like, it's kind of an extension of, I think, basically a personal human question, right? It's like, oh, well, I don't last forever. What happens to me once I die? Or what happens, what is there after that point? 
And then you just extend it to, well, what happens to the tribe after there is no more tribe? Or what happens to the civilization? Like what, what takes its place? Like how do we progress as a species? So there's that aspect to it. And then there's also um, an aspect of survivalism to it, mm-hmm. which again taps into a very, I guess, a very primal kind of tradition that we have. Um, a lot of the, the tales and the mythology and all that stuff that people used to tell thousands of years ago, you know, you have shamans and people around the fire and stuff. Um, a lot of it was uh, basically like encoded survival survival information this is what we don't do to anger the gods and this is what we don't do to you know this is what we have to do to survive and this is why we do this and this is why we do that um so there's systems of morality um there's existential thoughts about mortality there are uh sort of life lessons or sort of like what do you do if there is no more of what you knew and you have to replace it with something else so I think that that drive to sort of, even if it's in a speculative sense, to sort of absorb useful information just in case, instinctively, subconsciously, is always there. And I mean, who hasn't wondered, like, man, what would happen if fill in the blank, you know, we all of a sudden launched a bunch of nuclear missiles or World War Three broke out or we got hit with a giant asteroid or something like that. So, you know, we live on a planet that's unpredictable. And while a lot of us would probably say that certain events seem unlikely, they're not outside the realm of possibility. I mean, mm-hmm. we could have a giant earthquake or get hit by an asteroid or Yellowstone to go up or something like that. Like, you just never know. But it's, you know, many of us live as if things will continue to be normal until they're not anymore, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I think uh, one of the things you mentioned uh, about how your uh, your real favorite genre is probably science fiction. I, I think uh, what I see is, is that a lot of um, a lot of uh, post apocalyptic post apocalyptic fiction tends to fall under that category of uh, like a lot of them could be considered science fiction. Um, definitely, at the very least, speculative fiction. Um, but yeah, it just goes along the lines of, um, what you guys all were saying about how, you know, there's these possibilities of things that, that can happen, whether they are likely or not. Sometimes you just want to read something that where you can imagine number one, like how, how does the thing happen? You know, sometimes that's not really germane to the story, but sometimes it is like, maybe it's a story about how they're trying to figure out how it happened or prevent it from happening or uh, you know, learn about how it happens so they can fix things. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a lot of, uh, I think for me, the the science fiction type of stories are the ones that um, appeal to me the most when it comes to post-apocalyptic kind of stuff. Like I, I can't say that I ever really gravitated towards uh, like zombie apocalypse kind of stories. Uh, but, you know, something like Terminator 2 um, or, or, uh, I don't know, just different science fiction stories that are more uh, along the lines of how technology can, can, uh, you know, backfire when, when people don't wield it properly, you know, you can really cause a lot of damage with um, technology that we create. 
so uh, yeah like things like that um tend to draw my attention and and more more than that i, I think uh when it comes to this specific sub subgenre what i do enjoy is is pretty much the same thing that you guys all mentioned like seeing how people react and and respond to those kinds of situations and seeing how the breakdown in society or seeing how uh survivors uh, of the of the event try to you know scrape by how do they try and carry on living and what does living even really look like in that kind of situation i think those are the kind of fascinating questions that uh i think the best post apocalyptic stories they usually have some kind of commentary on on what that all means right like how does it like it, it'll show you uh the remnants of humanity or or even like the the worst of humanity on display and and kind kind of makes you think well is that really too far off from what we see in real life right now you know like you can easily kind of see how uh people's natures are the same but uh in a more extreme situation it's it's just kind of exacerbated and i, I that's that's the thing that fascinates me when it comes to this kind of fiction we're one meal away from being murderers and <laughs> thieves and just animals. <laughs> that is the thin line between civilization and <laughs> chaos. Did you hear that, everybody? You got to feed Albert. Make sure Albert has dinner. I didn't you don't get a know what we'll today. unleash on the world. <laughs> I didn't get a sandwich today. I guess I'm going to have to rob my neighbors. <laughs> I'm going to have to commit a home invasion. <laughs> it's like, it's only been two hours, but he's gone on a murder spree. <laughs> We've got to appease Albert. All right. Hey, let's, uh, hey, let's. What's that? Sorry, I was going to say that's a really good observation um, as well about how the sci-fi tends to overlap. Um, yeah, it's it's one of those things where it can also be kind of a parable or a warning. Like, mm -hmm. you know, if we don't, if we're not careful with what we have or where we're headed, you know, think like uh, Brave New World or 1984 or something like we could wind up in this position, you know. Yeah, yeah, actually stories like that, like Brave New World or 1984, um like those are those those stories kind of take the the concept of of a dystopia into or and make that like the focus of it. Um I, I yeah, actually that was another thing that I was thinking about too. I I didn't want to bring it up earlier just cuz I thought it would kind of uh lead to a bigger can of worms, but uh, like the the concept of dystopian fiction has been pretty popular in recent years too and even i think there's i would still say there's a distinction between post-apocalyptic fiction and dystopian fiction because at least in dystopian fiction there still is a functioning society it may be a horrible totalitarian society or some something else about that society uh may be messed up and and off but there's still a functioning society that that people can kind of cling to e even something like a, i don't know like blade runner um you know the 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 world still functions it, it's just a world that uh you know i probably wouldn't want to live there <laughs> because it's dangerous or or whatever 
but yeah, there, there's definitely an interesting relationship between dystopian fiction and, and post-apocalyptic fiction. The weird thing I've noticed is that it, it kind of feels like these past 10 or 15 years, it, there's a lot of dystopian fiction that tends to be popular um, in young adult literature, young adult Longer fiction. Games, Maze Runner. Yeah, you think of things like that. And those things all got turned into movies. So there's obvious, obviously some kind of audience for them. Like those aren't necessarily things that appeal to me in the slightest. But yeah, somehow they're still really popular. Um, maybe it's with a specific age group or, or demographic. But I was going to ask you. Yeah. Do they not appeal to you because they're dystopic stories, or do they don't appeal to you because they're in from for teen audiences? Uh, I'd say the latter. I don't have anything against dystopian fiction as a concept, but those specific examples I I brought up. Uh, yeah, like I think. The Maze Runner, I think when they made the first movie, I, I forget, I might have been hanging out with some friends and they just wanted to put it on. So I kind of just sat through it. But yeah, that wasn't something that I, I cared to watch again or, or even really, uh, you know, f investigate to learn more about uh, the story or, or read the books or anything. Yeah, I saw all of the, like, Amir's had all the Hungry movies and I think two of the... It's not Amazing Runner, but it's the other one. Divergent? Yeah, Divergent. Oh, uh, actually, uh, I think which, I might have seen Divergent. I, I, I get those confused, man. They all kind of look the same, and, and my, I don't my, care about them. And my so. brother was a big fan of Divergent. It's all about hot we young people before, but surviving like, in the aftermath. <laughs> but, <laughs> That's but like, not real! I, 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 I watch those movies, and... <laughs> <laughs> they should all be horribly disfigured. They should be, they should be monsters. <laughs> well, speaking of disfigured, I feel like there should be like a mirror, and like on the same wall, the TV when I'm watching these movies or whatever. So I think when I watch them, I think my face becomes disfigured to the point where I'm just like, like I get they, too they, sad. They did, they did that. That doesn't make any sense. Like just the names and things they use to like feel like they're intellectually more elevated, uh, in in conveying the story. I'm like, I'm like. I'm like that's contrived and 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 really silly. I'm like, and it's just this look of just of just clear like just like just clear like the stories make sense in the in like a very simple level. Like I, I get what they're trying to do, but at the same time, it it doesn't make sense as to why they're even telling the story. Um, mm -hmm. Like I'm just like it's like and it's just like I'm I'm bored, but also like just in some part like intellectually fascinated by everything that's wrong with those stories. <laughs> Yeah, you, but, uh, it's 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 kind of like uh, staring at a train wreck or something, huh? <laughs> right? No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but as as a comic medium, I find the stuff very fascinating because you there's something about watching it where it's devoid of I feel a lot of the ego that might be going into trying to craft like the apocalypse story, just like just to tell a story just happens to be set in some sort of apocalyptic future or context um, without any actor trying to give it some unnecessary gravitas. Just let, let the characters of the stories like tell, show you what's happening, kind of pull mm -hmm. you into the, the feeling of what's going on. Um, the sense of trepidation and, and, and angst that one might have about just simply surviving and to kind of bridge back and realize that that really is the same angst you have one has in simply just surviving the real world as it is. Mm -hmm. Like, this notion of like, I actually don't know what's going to happen next. And the whole thing is incredibly frightening and, 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 and dangerous. And 
it's a world unknown to us, despite as much as it is familiar to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. But I think there's something else you mentioned. Uh, I'm trying to figure out where I lost my thought. Um, but I, oh, I want to mention, I did notice that I think it was around the time that I think Walking Dead came out, which is what I'll be talking about later. Around that time, I think there were also a number of games that were that involved like some sort of zombie-like characters, and then there was a flood of zombie mania that came in the past mm-hmm. um, fifteen years. Mm-hmm. Like the Resident Evil movies started popping out. Um, we had twenty-eight days later. Um, they made a movie of thirty days of night. Um, was, was that more vampires? Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. That is vampires, huh? Um, and yeah, the, like they did, they remade the hills have eyes and all this other stuff. Um, and that it's zombies? Just, I thought they were just like hill people. <laughs> hill people, <laughs> people but they're like they're mutated and they and they can yeah, I think mutated they can affect people. you or in some way. I, I forget. Gosh. But but it felt like this. It felt like there was this this the the zombies had rearisen as as a popular storytelling device. Even though, like, I think. <laughs> you sound like an old person. <laughs> Is that what the zombies <laughs> in the hills have eyes sound like? I don't know what uh, no, I think it's just Albert's grandfather. Friend! Food! <laughs> and okay. and so we did have, like, intermittent zombie stories in the, in the 80s and 90s, but I think the, the zombie stories that people are familiar with are the Romero zombie movies which didn't come out every year. They were spaced out over long intervals. And he like told the stories that he wanted to tell, you know, in whatever fashion. But like, I just feel like in the past 18 years or so, it's like, we've just been um, slapped in the face with a fish full of zombie stories, just like over and over again. I do think that, I mean, I don't want to like veer off on too much of a tangent. Uh, there was a period where zombies were really hot. You had Marvel zombies. And even in this current year or yeah, this current past year, Maybe even 2019. There was DC East. DC East. DC East. It's DC East. Sounds like diseased. I think that's what it's supposed to sound like. It's like a play on words. They spelled it. It's... They spelled it DC and East. So I'm going to pronounce it DC East. <laughs> so it's basically DC the DC eased. version of Marvel Zombies. Yeah. So it's DC. So it's it's kind of that's plenty of words that kind of backfires in them. DC eased its writing quality to make a diseased version of stories <laughs> that mimics something that another company had done ten years prior. But I will say that in recent years, it feels like there's been a bit of a dip in the whole zombie thing. I don't think we've seen quite as much. Like, yeah, yeah I think. Walking Dead sort of hit the stride in World War uh, Z. World War Z and Zombie like, Nation. Yeah, I don't think we see quite as many now. Like, it'd be interesting to see like a trend chart to see, if, like, just by year how many zombie-related things came out and what the sales numbers looked like. But, oh yeah, I think it's, I think it's definitely heavily decreased. I think I think the peak was yeah. around between two thousand five and two thousand ten. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even stuff like on the worse end, like, not worse necessarily qualitatively, but just in terms of aesthetic, but, like, crossed or something like that. <laughs> that, was, that was kind of, you know, I, I even feel like that was on the, 
the back end of the craze just because they were like, we've already shown the most depraved stuff that we <laughs> thought was possible in the zombie genre. And then like, every, we've, Yeah, and then we're just going to push it to the full extreme and just make it the, the worst of the worst. I, and where do you go from there? <laughs> I, I read, I think they, the, the, I think the original cross was, I think, was it six or 12 issues by Garth Ennis? Yeah. I and then was there was or... um, Cross Family or something. There were a bunch of them. There's a, there's a bunch of good them. writers too. I think uh, Alan Moore did some. And I think David Lepham did did a uh, one. Mm-hmm. I want to say Kieran Gillen might have. And yeah. there were some that where they really showed um, some really awful stuff that's like, like to the point where like, in this context. Mentioning that these things, these things are happening would have been like okay, it's filling out this universe of this, the depravity of what this disease is doing to people's minds, but actually showing it on the pages was like I was like it kind of unnerved me. It's gratuitous. Like, it's yeah. gratuitous. I think I think it was in crossed. It was the one with the the farm and the family, and the context was I think the father was like raping his daughter except except for the eldest one. Um, I haven't actually read any of it. I'm just like. I'm aware of it peripherally, but that's enough awareness to know that it's like, I, I like I wouldn't even necessarily say that I have like a, a delicate stomach or that it makes me queasy, but it's enough for me to, to know. So. Like I'm not I'm not reading. This isn't something I'm reading for fun at this point. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like it doesn't bring me joy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I think I had to put it down when I saw in one of the panels like um, a brother and sister were like looking on to some town that was being ravaged, and like some priests were like literally raping like sixteen, seventeen-year-old girls on the on the panel like is being depicted, and I'm like, I'm like, did did they did they have to mention this? I think one could infer things were happening that were so depraved, but like, did you have to say it and did you have to draw it? Like it's a free country; they can do what they want. So I'm not saying they shouldn't per se, but like. But like, was it, did it serve any real narrative purpose or did it accomplish anything more than my own imagination could have let me to say, this world has now literally gone to, to the most depraved realm I could. So it was just, I was like, all right, and I had to put it down. I'm like, I wasn't, I wasn't like vomiting afterwards, but I was just, I felt really unnerved. I felt like, I'd felt very just like, just like, eh, just like, I didn't want to touch it. You know, I felt dirty. It's, it's gross. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. It's, it's crass, gratuitous. I, I question uh, the personalities of people who actually like to read Crossed. <laughs> I don't actually know anybody personally who, who reads it. Or reads it and enjoys it and keeps on reading it. Yeah. It, <laughs> Zach, in, in case you, you're not familiar with the comic, uh, Crossed is a story about how there's some sort of pandemic across the globe that turns people into violent monsters. So they, they do things like, uh, you know, they just start murdering people. Um, raping it's, people it's not a zombie in the traditional sense it just makes you crazy or depraved yeah and the thing is it, what what happens is i think and you know correct me if i'm wrong but what the disease does is it forms a cross on people's face yeah that for, for, for no reason whatsoever out of boils I, I, or something i'm pretty like sure that. it's just because garth ennis really hates uh religion so he yeah no to... that's, that's what i got from it i'm like <laughs> yeah. there's no reason why that should, like that has any context for like affecting the mental state of somebody yeah 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 you know it's it's okay hearing you guys describe it that's quite enough to know i'm gonna take a hard <laughs> pass on that one it's you just saved me you just saved my eyes on that one yeah 
I felt the first six issues by Ennis, aside from that facial scarring, which I thought was just like clearly a, like him making a commentary about religion. I thought the first six issues were reasonable. I think some of the spinoffs just got a whole lot worse to the point. I was like, I just like, just, 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 I could, I was like, no. <laughs> so we've just talked about one of the worst post-apocalyptic <laughs> comics. Now let's talk about some stuff that's actually worth reading. <laughs> let's, let's get into our recommendations. Shanus, you said uh, you were going to talk to us about The Walking Dead. Yeah, that's right. Um, so my choice for... A small uh, indie comic. <laughs> <laughs> a little unknown comic called The Walking Dead. <laughs> <laughs> Published by this medium-sized independent publishing company called um, Image. Image. Um, <laughs> Image. Image. Um, and um, written by Robert Kirkman. And I think it's penciled by Charlie Adderd. Yeah, Charlie Adlard. Uh, Adlard yeah. The, the first uh, six issues of The Walking Dead were drawn by Tony Moore, and I think he is considered uh, the co-creator, but mm -hmm. Charlie Adlard's drawn it for like the, the rest, rest of the 180-something issues. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's actually, I think Tony Moore, and this is a, just a brief aside, I think on The Walking Dead TV series, they always credit uh, Robert Kirkman, Charlie Adlard, and I think Tony Moore as the creators of The Walking Dead. Oh, okay, that's cool. They gave uh, Adler that type of credit. And Definitely yeah. Adler. I, I forget if Terry, I think Terry Moore's on there too, but I'd have to, you can, I can just quickly sketch, look up like the opening crawl for Walking Dead. Mm -hmm. um, so I chose Walking Dead just because it's, it's actually not a comic book that I myself had personally bought, <laughs> but I read the issues. I think, was it, Drew, were you the one buying it or was it Ma who bought them? That was me. Yeah, I was the first one to start checking it out back when we were But you never uh, bought college. issue number one, though, did you? I wish I did, man. That That's kind of a like thing a, that I regret. Is it like a 10K that, book now? It's, yeah, it's a, it's out of all the modern comics of, of our era, but like that's definitely one of the most valuable, um, like monetarily speaking, that's one of the most valuable comics. Yeah, which is really unheard of. Like, There's no comic yeah. book that's been published since like the night, even the 80s, even that's worth more than maybe a couple hundred dollars, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wish, I wish my trade paperback is worth that much, man. <laughs> <laughs> you you, you kind of wish you could buy that book when it was a, a, a nice, measly like was it two fifty dollar cover price and just buy four of them, and now you'd be sitting on you spend ten dollars and sitting on a on on like you know forty thousand. Totally, man. Nice. You could just retire. I remember <laughs> I, I discovered the book. Um, I think I was I was aware of it when when it was first coming out just because it was pretty hyped up. But this one time, I don't even remember if, if I was with you at the store that day, Shanus. But we were at the Isotope in San Francisco, back at their old location on uh, Noriega. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right and and at, at some point, uh, I remember just talking with uh, James, the the owner, and and just talking about like cool recent comics, and he mentioned The Walking Dead was pretty hot. So I was like you know what i'll check it out and then he showed me this uh one one panel in one of the pages where where uh tony moore had drawn him in as a corpse <laughs> so i was like okay yeah i'll buy that and and it was only 10 bucks for the for the first six issues so i was like yeah i'll I'll check it out and that's how i got hooked on it man yeah i i, I read it when you when you brought it over and i i was really um engaged with it too uh what i what i found most fascinating about it is that it was not a colored book. It's mm. black and white. 
which going into it, I did not expect it because I think the cover was colored. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was the style that, that uh, Kirkman wanted to go with. And it, it, it actually works incredibly well with that style. This, this, and there's probably a lot of commentary that can be made about that choice of color scheme, like keeping it to black and white and what he's trying to say through the story with that. Um, and I've thought about it. I don't know if I have a, a, a good sense of, of that, but in, in some way, maybe just the idea that he maybe just didn't want people to be distracted by the colors, just to say, just take the story as it is. Don't worry about the reality of it. Don't worry about the realistic aspect of people flushed out in color. This just hear people, here's the scene, here's the context, go with it. Um, and I think one of the things that I ended up liking most about it was something that I had originally bothered you about when I read it saying, hey, so what, what caused this zombie virus? Like, what, what's the mm. cause? And you said, don't worry about it. It's not, it's not mentioned. And it's like, it's not important. And, and that's true to the soul of it. It's, he's just like, I'm going to completely avoid giving any attempt at a scientific explanation as to what caused this. It's just, here's the context. We're going to talk about the survivors after this situation has occurred. Mm-hmm. And, and once you push that aside, and because that's not mentioned, the, I think they have, and I think in the first story arc, they go to the CDC where, like this, like he he addresses that situation, saying they're attempting to to like find a cure. Like he doesn't, I think, completely ignore the scientific aspect. But he says, "Okay, they're trying. They can't find it. Okay, no cure. We don't want to cause it. Leave it be." Um, so I, I think he handled it in a very intelligent way, of saying, "Don't worry about this. It's, that's not the important part of the story. It's about the people, not not the zombies themselves." The zombies are the set pieces that, like, you can think of a chessboard that, as they move around, they're causing these, these characters to, with, they're going to get reactions, you know, fear, anxiety, all this stuff. And how do they handle that with other people around them? And how do, like you said earlier, how do people behave um, in these kinds of situations? And so, and, and without that scientific aspect hanging over your head all the time, because it doesn't even mention it at that point, you're, you get sucked in the story a lot more easily because you, for, you just don't worry about whether or not it's real. You just simply accept the fact that these people are living around the undead. Um, mm-hmm. uh, just in the, uh, in the off chance that uh, our listeners somehow may not have uh, read the comic or seen the show, you want to just offer a, a brief synopsis or like how would you, how would you uh, pitch the show to people? Or the, I would, not the, the, show, comic, the comic. I would, I would pitch comic. it as... Um, a future that's uh, the world, uh, the world's um, overridden with um, zombies, the walking dead. And it's about the story of a group of survivors trying to reestablish some semblance of society and encountering various um, resistance and threats, both undead and human um, to that endeavor. Um, in such where the group is an ever revolving and rotating group of people because you never know who's going to survive. The idea of a main cast almost isn't quite there. Yeah, I was going to mention earlier, and I could be wrong about this, but I think that part you were talking about where they go to the CDC, I think that might have been on the show because from what I remember of the comic, I don't think they actually go to the CDC. Oh, they didn't? Okay. Yeah, so from what I remember in, so in the comic, it's even less of a point that, 
you know, that they try to establish what caused it. Again, I could be wrong, but at least... No, you're, I no, I think... Anyway. No, I, no I, think, I think you're right. Um, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I think the CDC wasn't something that was in the comic books. I, th I think the first six issues is just, is just the main... There is a main protagonist for the majority of the story that, it, that uh, when it was being printed, because it, it, I think it just ended a few months ago, I think. His name, yeah. was, his name is Rick Grimes. Rick Grimes, and he was, a, uh, I think, a local town sheriff. Yeah, he's your point of view character in the story. And he, the opening sequence is he's in the middle of a, a cop chase with his partner, um, Shane, and Rick somehow gets a bullet, gets injured, and he wakes up to a world that's different than what he knew when he went into the hospital. Yeah. Um, almost kind of like getting the hint that you kind of wonder if this is, there's almost a sense I look back saying, is this really happening or is it him like having like this coma? Yeah, having a coma dream. dream. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's a soap opera. <laughs> the, the entire story was a dream. <laughs> It was all in Rick's mind while he was in a coma in the hospital. Wow. No, we're just kidding. Uh, could I, um, I, I kind of want to add uh, a little bit to what you were saying. Um, I, I do think that uh, Robert Kirkman plays up to a lot of the social commentary in, or, or the social aspect uh, of The Walking Dead. Like, there's... It's interesting. In those early issues, there's no coincidence that uh, he decided to make Rick a sheriff, you know, someone who was in a position of authority in the old world. And a lot of, one of the most interesting things that I remember from reading The Walking Dead is, um, this was something that Robert Kirkman brought specific attention to, but a lot of the stories put, put Rick into the uncomfortable moral position of having to make a decision of, you know, what's the right thing to do plus versus what's the expedient thing to do. Right. Pragmatic. And the pragmatic thing to do. Exactly. And there comes a point where, you know, it, it, where you come to realize it's even harder for him because he's part of the old authority, authority structure, you know, He's, right, and not even that. The people around him still see him as exactly. They know he's a sheriff. They see him as a cop. Exactly. So every time they see a cop taking a, like the choice of a judge, jury, and executioner into his own hands, even yeah. though the idea of a jury and judge and executioner no longer really exists in the traditional sense yeah. of you can't go to a court and completely, you know, like you know, do the whole thing while zombies yeah. are trying to chop in your brains. Um, yeah. It has a There's weird so effect on the reader, too. Who's he to make these choices just because he has a yeah. gun and just because he had a badge that meant something at one point? Yeah. So it's this thing that he himself questions because he doesn't want to be in that position, but at the same time, nobody else really wants to be there, too. Yeah. And 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 Carpenter definitely does play, the, play with this idea of wh what does it mean to be a leader? What does it mean to make these moral decisions? And he plays with Rick being a sole leader with there being a committee, him then him being a sole leader again. Yeah. And all these different like power dynamics that would make sense that if you put a bunch of random people together who all have different ideas of what should be done, some driven by fear, some driven by, by a sense of compassion, some driven by a sense of, of morality, and some driven by a social contract, they're all going to have 
very different attitudes about what should be done. Yeah. And competing with that is just the mere survival. Like yeah. at the end of the day, what's more important, your right to speak or your right to live? And, and it's not an easy thing to always answer. Um, and as we know, cause we live through something that, you know, these days almost, you know, nowadays, like, you know, like what's, what's right and what's wrong. And, and so he addresses all that. And in that book, he also addresses other topics that, you know, it's not new. Like he, he addresses the idea of abuse, both, um, marital abuse, um, abuse of power, um, abuse of body. And, and he tackles them in, in a way that's very human that almost makes you forget that there are zombies outside the walls mm-hmm. that it almost feels like the zombies are at this point they're undead things they're they're not thinking they're background they're, noise they're operating on pure instinct yeah but the evil that humans do to each other is is if, if not premeditated very intentional it's conscious and it's a lot and it's hands down deplorable and yeah i was gonna mention there's there's this one interesting scene in, I, I forget specifically what issue, but it's, it's a scene, and I, I don't rem- fully remember the context either, but basically something had gone wrong, and it was after the fact, and they were, they had kind of collected themselves, and they were trying to uh, gather themselves after this, this altercation that they had with either with some person basically and rick gives this speech where he goes is this the speech dude is it the speech i i don't know if it's the speech because i don't remember verbatim what the words are but okay. the 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 speech ends basically with him like lecturing his people and he goes we're the walking dead mm-hmm. that's you know? the speech yeah so i mean that's that's some interesting commentary there you like think you know that when they name drop the series that it's the zombies but no he's talking about the survivors right because technically speaking the walking dead the zombies are really they're undead the walking dead are the people who have at, at some point kind of abandoned almost all hope there's they're literally dead inside but they're still walking around as though life still matters as if, as if though some semblance of what they knew was still there to work for yeah yeah that was definitely one of the high points for this series for me. I remember the first time I read that, I was like, wow, that's a, that's some really good writing by Kirkman there. And the art really sold it too. Um, yeah. I think, yeah. and it's, it's really hard to get a speech like that out yeah. because, because it can, it can come off a little too preachy or too like grandiose that it almost feels laughable, but it was very grounded and very like, I, I like the way he just kind of tackled this idea. Like, like the motif or theme that he's been trying to play out without necessarily batting you in the face with it, but simply saying, yeah. Hey, here's a perspective you may want to consider. Yeah, exactly. And, and also, it makes like, so much sense in character. context. Yeah. Also just like the fact that, yeah, these are the characters in the story. They're, we're not the ones imposing a view on them. He's saying if they were real characters, this is something they themselves should reflect upon this idea of what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be dead? Mm-hmm. And it's a reasonable thing to, for them to at some point discuss and, having him voice that through Rick was, I think, a well, a well-planned um, choice. Um, and, and overall, like, it, it just felt like a story about humanity. Just, just, there's another threat out there. Things can kill you. Um, it happens the things that kill you will make you become those things that will kill other people, but, you know, so be it, you know. Um, 
and just the characterizations are great. Like he has such a nice, vast array of characters that you get to know over various periods of time. Some survive, some live longer than others. Um, but a, a lot of them are around for enough issues that you really get a sense of his ability to capture really distinct personalities mm -hmm. that have the kind of human traits that we would almost envision as a sample of population around us. Like, you know, I make it sound so bleak, but like not everybody there's abusive. It's just the few people who think they know what to do or just like, just want the power and like want some sense of control because they feel like this world has lost control. They themselves feel lost. And so they need to, re they need to like capture that sense of control in order to mm -hmm. feel grounded. Like it's a very classic case of people who tend to be abusive, right? Yep. They feel like they don't have power. So they try to convince themselves they have the power by putting us by putting somebody else down, usually the, like their spouse or or their children, because yeah. it makes them feel better as a person. It makes, makes them feel like, like a big man. Yeah, because if they can control one thing, if they control one person, they can control the whole world. <laughs> and um, but the but the characters he he portrays that have this attitude take it in different ways too. Like you have yeah. between like the character, the governor, Negan, and Alpha. Um, and I think there's even a small group of cannibals they encounter at some points too. Like they, they have like very distinct philosophies in how they kind of retain their sense of control and power to kind of feel like the world hasn't gone crazy for them, even though they've gone crazy themselves. Um, yeah, it's a, but the majority. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say that it, it, it is fascinating because it, it, it goes on to, that really emphasizes um, the point that you made earlier about how, the the zombies aren't really the the scary thing or the horrifying thing like this is like most of the time when we think of a zombie story we think of it as a horror story but here the yeah there's something scary and definitely dangerous about the zombies the zombies are an ever-present danger but mm -hmm. the horror is what people do to other people <laughs> that's right, what's no, terrifying and, and at some point, once you get enough into the story, yeah, you're aware the zombies are dangerous and you might get a little like jumpy on your seat when you, when you see them encounter one, like when you flip a page and all of a sudden the zombie face comes out at this character. But for the most part, you realize that the zombies are slow. They're, they're brain dead. They, don't, they just operate like animals without, even less than animals, I would say, because the animals at least can think about what they want to do next. And for the most part, they can, they can get rid of the zombies fairly easily in small groups. Of course, a horde of zombies is a whole other mess, but at some point you realize that the zombies themselves are this ever-present danger, but they're not really the dangerous element. Mm -hmm. They can handle the, the zombies as they encounter them because they're faster. The, the humans are faster. They're, they're smarter. They, they, can, they, can, they can manage it. But what they can't always manage is dealing with other people who are perhaps in, in their own way, like I'll say, joker kind of smart like they have these machinations that only make sense to themselves but are well and cleverly constructed to really oppress and um the people around them but despite all those dangers of the human people around them these various monsters the majority of the people are decent people who just want to live they want to survive they want to protect their families and it's like very much like you see this over time like the majority of them are decent people who just don't have, they feel like they're between a rock and a hard place. And they mm -hmm. all want to do the right thing. They just don't know what the right thing always is or when they should do it. And that's like the challenge of what, it, uh, that's a, this, our daily challenge of like, 
always asking like, did I do the right thing and did I do it at the right time? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think the if you look at the back cover copy of a one of the trade paperbacks, it's one of the funny things about uh, the trade paperback collections is that they all pretty much have the same uh, text on the back. Like you know how most books will tell you a little synopsis of what's contained inside, but mm-hmm. but uh, of the specific story um, or the plot. But these Walking Dead trades, at least the ones that I've got, um, and I've got most of them, and it's like 20 or 30 something volumes. Um, they all pretty much have the same summary and, and it just kind of describes like, you know, people spend a lot of time watching TV uh, and, you know, kind of just doing things that, that are meaningless. How long has it been since any of us have really needed something that as opposed to just wanting something and the world is gone. There's no government, no grocery stores, no mail delivery, no TV, none of that. And then, and then like the final the final line um, of the summary is in a world ruled by the dead, we are forced to finally start living. So I felt like that always summarized the, the theme of, of the story where it's like everything that they know is, is gone. So it's, it's post-apocalyptic in the sense that uh, the, the whole infrastructure of human society and civilization has collapsed because the majority of the world has somehow been transformed into zombies um, and all these pockets of survivors, they're, they're actually forced to confront um, those questions that you, you brought up, Shanice. You know, they're forced to confront, am I doing the right thing? Or, or they're, they're forced to make decisions uh, between what's pragmatic versus what uh, would be lawful in the previous civilization which no longer exists. Right. And who's to judge them for the choices they make? Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, that, that's, that's the scary thing actually. Like it, it's, it's, I feel like horror is a genre that is very difficult to do in comics, but because the walking dead isn't predicated on traditional horror, like in the sense of like, when you think of a movie, uh, horror movies Things don't jump out at you yeah there's like <laughs> it's jump scares and gore right essentially yeah. right that, when that's you, horror yeah if, if you read a horror novel the best horror novels are psychological in nature yeah and a lot of times they they create that that sense of horror is developed because you you care about the characters they're well developed and fully realized and you have some sort of connection or sympathy or empathy with the characters and when they get when they go through things in the story that are uh, traumatic, that's the element of the psychological element of the horror that affects you as the reader. And and that's what The Walking Dead does um, to a very good degree. And and that's why I, I like it a lot too. I I just want to say two more things on my end about it. Is I mentioned it earlier. Um, the art is phenomenal, and 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 it's not to anybody's surprise that what one can do with pencil work is just as wonderful as what one does with colors. Mm-hmm. Classic cases, the original printing of Bone by um, Jeff mm-hmm. Smith was black and white and it mm-hmm. did not lose anything by having it not be in color. Yep. There's something stark about having The Walking Dead be white and black, which is kind of this dichotomy of living and dead and which color really depicts what, so to speak, as white and black are not really colors. 
mm-hmm. but you get the full sense of, of shadow, shade, angle of faces, expressions, and in some way even more pronounced. And you can kind of in kind of kind of motivate you to kind of feel the details as you look at them. Um, it's a stark reality, and with that comes a very stark uh, form of art. Um, you got to give shout outs to Cliff Rathburn. He's the gray tone artist on the series. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. I, I, as I mentioned before, I, I just seem to remember writers' names a lot more easily than, than artists' names. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I, I, like, as a brief aside here, I tend to follow the writers and I will read other works that you've written, which oftentimes means they're working with other artists. So it's harder to find a, a name association because I'm so focused on the, on the writers with different artists. The artists kind of supply behind me in mm-hmm. mind. Um, and the, what was the other thing I wanted to mention, uh, about it is, and now I'm, I feel like I lost my train of thought from what was that earlier. Maybe it'll come back to me. I found the speech. I don't know if you want, should I, do you guys want me to read it or? Yeah. Give it, give us your best Rick Grimes impersonation. <laughs> well, I mean, Rick is Grimes going to sound is... like a 1920s Chicago gangster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'll never catch me, copper. <laughs> you, I mean, you'll never get me, zombie. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. So I'm just, it's, it's kind of a long speech, but it's, it's pretty powerful stuff. And, okay, I'll just give it a read. Um, so if I'm remembering this right, basically someone in their party has just harmed them. And Rick has taken it upon himself to execute justice on on behalf of the party. And they're all looking at him questionably. And uh, this is Rick giving his speech to the survivors. Do you think you're ever going to watch television again? Go to the bank, buy groceries, drop your kids off at school? Ever? It will never happen. You can come to grips with the sad fact or you can sit around wishing for it to happen. You can sit around trying to follow every retarded little rule we ever invented to make us feel like we weren't animals, and you can die. We will change. We will evolve. We'll make new, ru- we'll make new rules. We'll still be humane and kind, and we'll still care for each other. But when the time comes, we have to be prepared to do whatever it takes to keep us safe. Whatever it takes. You kill, you die. That was probably the most naive thing I've ever said. The fact is, in most cases now, the way things are, you kill, you live. We have to adapt to the world if we are going to survive. Have I gone a little crazy? Maybe, but so has the world. You don't want me to be the leader? Fine, I don't care. I'm happy to be without the pressure. I will tell you this right now though. I will do whatever I have to do if it keeps us safe. Whatever it is, I will do it. If you want to stop butting heads with me, if you want to get on the same page with me, understand that. But you have to stop the charade. You've got to stop fooling yourselves. This is it. This is our life. We're not waiting here. We're not biding our time, waiting for what comes next, or waiting to be rescued. This is what we have. This is all we'll ever have. If you want to make things better, make this place better, we have to come to grips with that. We, uh, so somebody interjects here and he says, uh, we are Rick, that's what you don't understand. We are trying to reestablish life as it was, 
That's our goal. We don't want to become savages. That's what you don't get. And he replies, It's obvious now that I'm the only sane one here. We already are savages, Tyrese. You especially. The second we put a bullet in the head of one of these undead monsters, the moment one of us drove a hammer into one of their faces or cut off or cut a head off, we became what we are. And that's just it. That's what it comes down to. You people don't know what we are. We're surrounded by the dead. We're among them. And when we finally give up, we become them. We're living on borrowed time here. Every minute of our life is a minute we steal from them. You see them out there. You know what we, that we, when we die, we become them. You think we hide behind walls to protect us from the walking dead? Don't you get it? We are the walking dead. We are the walking dead. That's some good writing right there. We are the walking dead. Yeah. Zach, have you ever read or even watched the, sh- the series? I actually have not, but I think I will now. I mean, that's pretty powerful stuff. And hearing you guys converse about it for the past few minutes, um, def- and especially the art as well, definitely that's on my list of things that I have to check out. I remember at the time that it came out, um, I don't know, I think I was maybe still in college. And it was, I just remember having seen a, just a bunch of other zombie stuff. We were talking about how much stuff was produced during mm-hmm. that time. And at the time, like not really knowing anything else about the story, I was like, oh, another zombie story, cool. And like, <laughs> I didn't really think anything else of it. Um, but obviously I think this is probably one of the highlights or one of the better uh, things that, that comes out of that genre. So uh, definitely I'll probably give it a read sometime. I mean, your recommendations definitely got me. I'll, I'll try it. Zach, I'm actually in the same boat as you. If, if Drew had never shown me Walking Dead, I would just walk by it in the comic book store and be like, okay, a zombie story, I don't care. Yeah, but you would have heard about it when they made the TV show. <laughs> well, I would have heard about it, but there are a lot of TV shows they've made out of comic book content of comic books I've never read, and so I didn't care to watch the show because I wasn't invested in that storyline. Oh, well, yeah, that's, that's, that's the other thing. Yeah, that's the other thing, too. Like, people watch shows, and a lot of times they're not even comic fans, and, you know, people say a lot of things, so... And people also like a lot of shows that maybe I don't like. So they're like, oh, The Walking Dead's so good. And I'm just like, eh, a zombie comic book, a zombie show. Okay, cool, whatever. <laughs> yeah, like in, in all reality, there's a small chance I would have eventually checked out The Walking Dead as a show, but I would have not been invested in watching it the, the first season it came out. Because had it not or the comic book, I'm like, oh, whatever this thing is. Because I, I think there's an actually a, a been a popular trend the past years of trying to transport popular comic books into some sort of visual format be it tv show or independent schlocky b movie if anything too <laughs> yeah um i remember the last thing i want to mention is and i did briefly mention this earlier is that what i really like about the storyline is aside from i would even say rick grimes his son carl and maybe another character or two aside from the him uh, you know um rick being the pov character the point of view character there really isn't a main cast you can consider mainstay throughout the whole series. People, People die. drop dead when you least expect it. Yeah. They're yeah. Fan or they though. or they or they run away and vanish into the story and we don't never we never hear from them again. Um, yeah, exactly. And I I think well they made a big news article about it, so people at this point who are into comic books would have probably seen this, but I'll just put it this way, Rick does not survive to the end. But he pretty much does. Um, 
Um, and that's that's not entirely unreasonable or or not surprising because he's the POV character. So that's kind of, I think there has to be at least a consistent anchor for the storytelling process. I think that's one of the things um, about the series, the comic book series uh, that I appreciate is because um, the creators finally did give it an ending. There was definitely a point there. Maybe I think, I think when I got to around like volume 20 something, I was like, man, is this just going to keep going? Is this going to be a never ending soap opera? Because if it is, I don't know if I can continue uh, just reading it or like, I'm just going to fall off the wagon at some point because it's, I, I, I think for me personally, endings give meanings their story. I mean, endings give stories their meaning. Um, and the the whole idea of a story just going on indefinitely was a bit too much for me to, to swallow. So I actually uh, kind of fell off the wagon for a little bit um, when I was just debating, man, should I just drop this series? But uh, yeah, last year they, they finally gave it an ending and it was a surprising way to end it because um, they didn't tell anyone that the series was ending. They even had solicitation, fake solicitations written up for the following issues that were gonna supposed to come out. And then this issue, I think issue 193 dropped and people got it and like, whoa, wait, this is the last <laughs> issue. <laughs> I was always kind of curious why they didn't just do it at issue 200. But it's kind of cool that it, it's a surprising number that you would not expect it anyhow. I think if it had come at 200, people might have uh, been bracing themselves for something major. But you right, know, because you expect something for those milestone numbers, right? Like if it was 150 or 200, but well, you don't expect you something from 193. 199. Like, oh, no, there's no 200 issue. <laughs> Kirkman's a showman. <laughs> <clears throat> but I, I like it because, of, like I said earlier, the, the rotating cast made the story feel more real because in the real world, there is no, there's, there is no main character. You could get shot, you get run over by a car, you, you get smashed by an asteroid, who knows what. <laughs> and in the story, the characters, there's like no preset time, like, oh, they'll be around for six issues and then I'll kill them off. Some around for one, for one panel, some around for a few issues, some are there for, the, for half the, half the comic book's lifespan. Yeah. Um, and you, you just, just, you just don't know. And there are times when you think, oh, they're about to die and they don't die. And yeah. so, and it's, it's never, and it, he never teases you like the way they do in the show, which I found very annoying and uh, lazy writing. He's simply just simply saying that they're in a situation where there are essentially almost no rules. Anything can happen, and I will make anything happen. So you can kind of see the the threats they all face, and it all happens that they're the threats they face come at the hands of fellow human beings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Speaking of uh, characters, got to give a shout out for my dude Glenn being a the Asian American character in the story. Got yeah. to have a lot of love for Glenn. <laughs> Yeah, when when Glenn died, that was like what? I was like what? <laughs> yeah, that 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 hurt. Because he was actually one. Of, he was actually definitely one of the more interesting, more popular characters. Um, but yeah, there there are a lot of things happen. Like it just it's 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 just fun to see how Kirkman just regards every character as as like no, you're you're only as important to me as I can tell stories through you. But once I'm done with that. You're you're off you're off to the world of the dead or the undead. Mm-hmm. So I, I I really like that part because 
it, it, it gave it a greater sense of realism in a context where I knew this was definitely not real, but it was, it was, it was nice to have that kind of a different experience, which is not entirely different because ecstatics and um, Milligan's X-Force, that was a very similar thing that, that he and um, Allred. And Allred. So I was, I was thinking, I was thinking Allred and I was thinking Adler because they're like <laughs> A's. The A's and the D's and the L's and the R's. Um, and Arled, Allred um, kind of did too. Like there was, there was, who were the main characters? You never really knew. Not until the end, at least. Yeah. It's good stuff, man. The Walking Dead. Got to check it out in case those of you who are listening haven't. Next up, uh, Zach, what do you got for us? Uh, yeah, so my pick is uh, We Stand on Guard. Um, the art team for that is uh, Brian K. Vaughn doing the writing, uh, Steve Scross doing the penciling. Um, I think I definitely have to tip my hat as well to uh, Matt Hollingsworth, the colors. Yeah. Um, he, I, I don't know, man, something about the colors in this one just really uh, helped carry the story along. Um, kind of going back to something Shanice was saying just a minute ago, though, just like still really thinking about that Walking Dead you guys were just talking about. Um, yeah, it, that really, it really heightens the sense of, of urgency, right? Like, it, that's just, that's such a good thing that I, I don't see in stories that often where it's like, you know, you're not really sure who's going to die, when they're going to die, but yeah. it just happens, you know? Um, yeah, so I have to tip my hat to that. That's that's really good stuff. But uh, back to We Stand on Guard. So yeah, that's the art team for it. Um, a basic synopsis is, I guess you could say it follows this uh, military unit that's uh, kind of roaming around the uh, backcountry in Canada. Again, a post-apocalyptic story, obviously, that's, that's what we're talking about. So the post-apocalyptic uh, aspect here is that there's, there's been essentially this, this war, this military conflict between the United States and Canada. The U.S. came out on top, and the U.S. is now maintaining a military presence in Canada and uh, using that military presence to, I guess, press and extort resources out of the Canadian people and, and use them for forced labor in some cases. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's sort of the context in which the story takes place. The group you're following is called the uh, Two Four. They're, they're they're a military group, and um, the main character, the one that you follow, kind of from the beginning of the story to the end, you're sort of experiencing this whole world uh, through her eyes. The main character is named Amanda, uh, so she sort of takes a whole journey as as the story mm-hmm. unfolds. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of turning over in my mind right now how much I want to divulge because I. There's part of me that wants to spoil it, but part of me that doesn't want to spoil it. Uh, I'm to gonna fully... say you should spoil it because if you don't, I will. <laughs> <laughs> All right, done deal. It's one of those. I, I I do think it's one of those things that's. I think you can read it without the shock and just kind of get. There's a lot to get from it, and I think it's worth definitely worth discussing. Um, yeah. 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 For sure. Um, there's there's just so many layers uh, to the story that I really enjoyed. Uh, I think uh, craft-wise, it's it's definitely up there for me because um, the writer Brian K. Vaughn, he's uh, you can tell that he's 
there's the general plot line of what's going on, but he's also sensitive to all the other, very sensitive to all the other themes and the sub themes that are like threaded throughout the story. Um, at the same time though, he never loses sight of the very personal, like individual connection that the main character has to all this. Like you never lose sight of, of how she's experiencing this and how she's processing what she's seeing, how she's, how she's thinking through what she's seeing. Mm -hmm. um, so this character, Amanda, gets sort of picked up by the 2-4 uh, when she's out one day. They actually almost wind up killing her, but um, she winds up becoming part of the group instead. Um, so from there on, they just have all these kind of like, kind of like crazy misadventures. They, they get in uh, a scuffle with some, with another military unit. They wind up killing a guy who's, who's manning this huge robot that he shouldn't, well, according to their intel, that he shouldn't even be manning. Um, they didn't know that these things were manned. They thought they were all automated, but they find this guy inside. So long story short, they wind up killing the dude, taking the giant mech. And so the mech then becomes part of their arsenal, which is actually really significant for events that take place later on in the story. Um, so in terms of craft, like I said, it's pretty superb. It's a short story, but the plotting and the pacing and stuff, it's told over, I think, six issues. Mm -hmm. um, but the plotting, the pacing, the characterizations, uh, the character arcs, just all super well done. Um, you get to know each person in this group. And I don't know, you get kind of attached to them. You get to kind of understand what their angle or what their stake in the fight is. You understand why they're fighting. Um, and, and what's valuable to them. But then also, I think, besides the, the really humorous aspect of it, where, you know, uh, Vaughn's always kind of poking fun at the differences between Americans and Canadians. Uh, <laughs> I've got some examples of that I'll, I'll go through in a second. So there's, there's definitely a humorous edge to it. And a lot of it is kind of a lighthearted story, the way things happen and the way they unfold. Um, but then there's also other very serious commentary, uh, a more existential thread that's woven through the story about, I guess, what happens in war, like how, how war unravels people and how it, it takes something that was quote unquote normal or that was ordered in a certain respect and it disorders it, it breaks it. Um, and so you, you see these people, you get attached to them. And then as the story progresses, you see them all in their different ways, just fall victim to essentially the horrors of war. Um, the people on the American side aren't really spared from that. Uh, the main characters are definitely not spared from that. Uh, and you see one person's journey through how a lot of these things uh, unfold. So bit by bit, you know, from the first issue onwards, uh, you start losing people. You, you, get introduced to these characters and you get kind of attached to them and then you see what happens when you lose them and you see how the other team members start to try and compensate for that um, until you reach the end which I think I'm not going to give away just yet I mean I, I will if I have to um, until you reach the end where the main character uh, has to make a decision that it not only defines her but it kind of speaks to who she's been or what she's become because of her past throughout the entire story. Mm -hmm. So some character arcs end in a character becoming something different than what they were by, by 
a lesson or something that they've learned uh, during the story or throughout everything that they've gone through, which this character does. But I feel like this ending is more of a, we're talking about apocalypse meaning reveal, which I think is fitting for this story. I think it has more of a revelatory nature where it, it sort of is the ultimate revelation of what the character has always been up until that point. Um, the very last couple of panels, um, you know, when, when the character says her lines or whatever, uh, everything she's saying and everything she's done is a callback to what actually happened in the beginning of the story. The whole reason she's, mm. she's actually fighting at all is mm -hmm. because of something that the uh, American side had done to her family. And so that defines the character's whole direction and every action she takes as the story progresses. And even um, right at the end, as the story ends, there's that flashback um, to, to her with her family and, and how it was before the war essentially like destroyed her life and it destroyed her. Um, so more than anything, it's, it's kind of a commentary of, you know, how different people react to that circumstance and how they decide to, uh, you know, either fight back or, or get swallowed up by it. Or, you know, there's a range of different reactions from, from each of the, each of the team members. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's kind of a, kind of a not so brief synopsis of the story, but those are the, the points and some of the themes that really stood out to me. Uh, art wise, um, I don't know how many listeners are familiar with the artwork of Steve Scrooge, but he is a pretty superb draftsman. Um, I remember him, him working on Wolverine back in the day. That was yep. some of the first artwork that I saw. Uh, I remember there's this one issue of Wolverine in particular. I don't remember what the exact uh, issue number is, but you know, it's a typical Wolverine story. He has to go uh, look after this kid in Japan. And uh, so he goes to Japan and I think the Yakuza are out and they're, they're gunning for him. And Skros, uh draws this one panel with like, I don't know, these like 10 or 15 henchmen or something like breaking through the glass and they're all like firing their guns uh, at Wolverine trying to kill him. And so the shot is like an upshot. So essentially you're, you're filming uh, from underneath these guys as they come in through the glass and everything, like he just nailed it. Everything was just drawn in like perfect, <laughs> pristine perspective. Nothing was out of place. Uh, nobody like looked awkward or looked like they were smacking into each other. Um, if you if you are an artist, you know how hard it is to to do a panel like that and to nail it. And this was a splash panel too. So it's a money shot and you got to get it right. Like you you're working under a deadline and if you're gonna do something like that, you can't get it wrong because you're gonna have to keep going back and redo it and you won't have time for that. Mm -hmm. Strokes just like threw it down. And I remember seeing that plus a couple other things and just going like, that is really impressive. Like I'm, I'm really floored by that. Um, I think he also helped work on some of the stuff for the Matrix as well. Uh, some of the storyboards yeah. and things like that. So yeah, anyone who doesn't know Steve Strokes' work, highly recommend it, um, check it out. There, there are some things that he does just stylistically in terms of like how he draws faces or like the, the detail and stuff in the faces sometimes that irks me a little bit, but that's more of a stylistic preference and it's not saying anything, you know, against his draftsmanship. Like everything is accurate. It is where it should be. Mm -hmm. um, 
sometimes just artistically, you know, I don't care so much for some of the decisions he makes, but, but overall, um, yeah, just, just really, really solid draftsmanship. Um, like I said, the coloring is just, uh, it, it carries the story really well. Um, in a lot of the panels, there is, how do I explain it? Sort of a, a, a muted, sort of almost dusty. Uh, it kind of looks like a filter almost. Yeah, yeah. It, it's like, it's almost as if you're filming it yeah. through a lens where you've been, you know, in the desert or like around sand for a long time. Yeah, like there's some kind of a, a grain, uh, film grain or something. Yeah, yeah. And if you'll notice, you get that for a lot of the shots where, uh, you know, say they're underground or they're in battle, they're in war. And then there's a really stark contrast, say, in issue number four, right? When they get to Ethan Allen Air Force Base, everything's super clear. Everything's really sharp. It's all bright and sunny. Like uh, the Americans who have all the money and, you know, they're all like literally the first couple shots you see is like, yeah, it's kind of this kind of we'll just say really well-fed uh, middle-aged man, <laughs> kind of binge, right? Which is a total contrast to the warfare and like the scraping for survival that the two, four has to go through. Yeah. So uh, Drew's, Drew's showing the page there. So yeah. So the color decisions in this um, just, they're, they're just as impressive as, as the draftsmanship. Um, another example I can think of is, you know, when you when you get to the that last part in the story, um, eh, I guess it's a bit of a spoiler, but not not a lot. Um, there's a big explosion, <laughs> but everything. <laughs> but, spoiler but everything, alert! There's a there's a big explosion. <laughs> <laughs> but everything leading up to that point, though, um, in terms of in terms of colors, the contrast in the mood of the story and the setting. And all the beats and everything are set up. So by the time you get to that moment, you feel it. And it's, it's this huge payoff. And it's, it's one of those things that um, it's, it's almost like, uh, to me, a similar effect to the Death Star blowing up in Star Wars. Because in that first, uh, the first time I saw it, it wasn't so much the explosion that, that, that got to me or that affected me emotionally. Um, Cause I mean, Hey, it's a movie. You have explosions everywhere. You can have explosions all the time. You look at Michael Bay films. I mean, enough said, right. <laughs> um, but it's not just the explosion. It's what it symbolizes. It's everything leading up to that and what that means for the characters in the story. So, you know, without giving too much away, by the time you get to that point, um, it's just everything boiling over. That is the culmination. And that's, that's the point that ties everything together. That's the head, if, if you want to put it that way, sort of the tip of the spear or the, the story coming to a head. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's just a really enjoyable read. Um, not to mention the fact that the main character, Amanda, repeatedly, they kind of underestimate her because she's kind of a softer looking character at first, but there's, there's a couple instances where she just does stuff and you're like, oh, okay, that's, I wasn't expecting that, but it's like, no, like, that's actually the kind of person she is. And that's part of that sort of uh, progressive revelation of the character throughout the story. Mm -hmm. You, you kind of take her for one thing at the beginning of the story, but by the end, um, she proves that she's something completely else, uh, something else completely uh, by the end of it. 
So yeah, those are uh, some things that stood out to me. What was that thing uh, earlier, Albert? You said if Zach wasn't going to spoil it, you wanted to. Was it the explosion? <laughs> yeah. Damn it! <laughs> no. Um, there be explosions. I so I remember reading this a while ago, so it's not like super vivid to me. But um, I so one of the things that I remember, just based on my impressions and um, in terms of uh, context that just adds to my how I feel about the book was. Um, I remember Brian K. Vaughn did an interview where he wanted to, so on the face of it, the, the, the crux of the interview was, I just want to tell a story where um, Canadians and Americans go to war, but he doesn't really like go to in, into great detail about it. And after reading the book, the impression that I got was that there's a reason that he chose Canadians. Um, so is that I, nice? Yeah, I, I think the <laughs> the stereotypical uh, perception that we have on com- Canadians is that they're a very nice people, and I I think for the purpose of this story, uh, he chose to do a story where Canadians go to war with Americans. To I think he wanted to get a point across, if, if I had to be perfectly honest. And this could be me projecting, but based on what I know of Brian K. Vaughan's work and um, what the story was about. So one of the things that I remember from uh, We Stand on Guard was a story. The resource that they were specifically trying to get was water. Water was very rare. So it was a war between America and Canada for not just any resource, but specifically water. And um, and this could me, be me just oversimplifying, but what I was going to spoil was at the very end of the book, the, the, the forces in America come up to, they're, they're on, the, on the way to, I forget if they're about to win this conflict and Amanda is there and she basically has her hand on the trigger and she's about to, she, she, she alone is in a position to stop this attack. She can set off this bomb. And what ends up happening is I think there's a moment of redemption where the powers that be in the United States or the person that represents the powers in the United States says to her something to the effect of, if you let us win, we can change all this back. We can like, you know, revitalize the environment. We can fix all this. We can make it, you know, make it back, back to the way it was. Um, you know, and if someone finds that scene and uh, wants to correct me or give me the specifics, that'd be great. But, but what I was going to ruin was the ending. Cause <laughs> in that moment, <laughs> When, when she's talking to the powers that be, uh, I believe this is Amanda, but she basically ends by saying, and, and I have the scene up right here. Wait, hang on a sec. Is, isn't her name Amber? Oh, Amber. I'm sorry. Just make Amber, sure. yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. But in the final moment, she says, because you know what really happens when you blow up a kid's parents? You don't get some noble defender of justice. You get me. <laughs> yeah. And... She, she basically releases the trigger 
that leads to this big explosion. And I can't say for sure, but I do think this is kind of Brian K. Vaughn not necessarily making a statement, but just talking. I think it's his way of saying that anyone can be a terrorist mm-hmm. because that's what they are. That's what the Canadians are in the story. They're, they're freedom fighters slash terrorists. And again, what are they fighting for but resources? And it's his way of getting... The way that I interpreted it when I was reading it was that was his way of getting it across. The, you know, this idea that we look at something like the Middle East and we look at the war for resource and we, we kind of look at them as others, as just these people that are incapable of, you know, there's, there's something about the way that their society is that allows them to be like that, you know? Mm-hmm. And in this, in, in We Stand on Guard, <clears throat> the setup for the story is there is a war between America and Canada over resources. And America is basically just running roughshod over Canada. And there's a small cell of these freedom fighters just trying to survive. And again, it ends in this moment where this, this girl is standing there in front of the representative of might and power for the United States. And they're offering her a chance to make this all right. And the very last scene of the story is her basically saying, it doesn't matter that you're going to give me this chance to, you know, revitalize our planet or whatever. You killed my parents. And at the end of the day, that's all I care about is. So in short, um, my interpretation of it was, it was Brian K. Vaughn's way of saying that anyone can be a terrorist. You know, driven, driven to certain circumstances. Yeah, it's funny you should mention that because I mean, now that we're just going to go ahead and spoil the whole thing, I mean, I may as well say, um, <laughs> I had some thoughts on that as well, but it was kind of the flip side of the coin. Technically, yeah, they would be terrorists. Um, but then also, I think it's it's a commentary on on people not wanting to be oppressed while their resources are stolen. That's exactly. That's how their side sees it. Exactly. Um, and like you said, obviously there's the whole thing with her parents and, and that defines that character. It's like, well, no, that's, I just will never be able to work with you people. You will always be mortal enemies to me because of what you did. Yeah. Um, but in that sense, it's kind of funny because he sort of flips, he flips it around. He flips the script. Um, in the Revolutionary War, uh, you know, that's what there were. There were like militias and groups of people that were kind of like this ragtag group of people that were running around fighting the British Army. And the British Army, you know, figured that they were they were illegitimate. Like they didn't they didn't recognize them because technically they they weren't legitimate. <laughs> they were not a legitimate mm-hmm. army. Um, so they wanted the same thing. They, they wanted freedom. They wanted, you know, they wanted to do their own thing, right? So she is part of this group that wants these people out of their country. And so in that sense, he kind of flips it to where the Americans act a little bit more like the, the British imperialists or the colonizers or whatever. I mean, given they're not fighting for exactly the same reasons. Um, but some of the things they do wind up looking very similar. 
and then on the Canadian side, some of their motivations for fighting actually look a little bit similar to the revolutionaries that, that started this country. So on the flip side of what you're saying, Albert, and I agree with you, I'm not disagreeing, but I think on the flip side of that, I think he's also making a commentary on kind of a, a universal um, human drive to like, I don't know, to not want to be oppressed, to, to be free and to not, I mean, basically to have, have justice or some sort of, um, I don't know, some sort of retribution for, for what happened to her family, you know? Yeah. Um, it's just one of those, those retaliation type things that happens in war. Yeah. I mean, I think overall the idea of war is never going to be as clean and as easy as we would like it to be. So, you know, one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Um, so that's, it's certainly a nuance. You know, one thing that, um, one of the thoughts that crossed my mind was how, when I, when I initially thought of uh, this story, um, it's, and it's been a while since I read it, it's probably been a couple of years since I read, read the story, um, but, but initially, uh, Zach, when you, when you mentioned that was your choice for a post-apocalyptic story, I was thinking, wait, is that, what makes that post-apocalyptic? And I, I was just thinking about it, because to, to me, I, I always, uh, or initially I had thought of it as a, more of a war comic, or a science fiction war comic. But then, um, you know, reconsidering it, uh, I'm thinking, I mean, actually, you know what? Can Canada in the story, Canada is a post-apocalyptic wasteland now. You know, yeah. it's like, yeah. like it, maybe maybe the U.S. is a little, is better off. Um, and I, I don't, it's been so long, I, I don't remember what the state of the rest of the world was like, but definitely Canada was super messed yeah. up. So I don't think the U.S. was in a better state either because I remember there's this one scene where some politician was there and he was having a conversation with someone and they're on this, they're basically in this isolated park that's, you know, not very big and they've clarified that this is the only, you know, really pure, clean sources of source of water in in the vicinity okay yeah if the world is like that if their country's like that then yeah things are pretty bad yeah (laughs) well i mean this was america though or their america yeah 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 so i was i was thinking about that when i picked it and also like i was saying um you know it's kind of it's kind of a double-edged sword because there's that there's that edge of it and then um the other one where you know there's the event that happens to the girl's family at the beginning of the story that's basically her apocalyptic event and mm-hmm. the rest of the story is her uh, reacting to that yeah i remember the the first scene in in issue one where it, it's basically a flashback of when she was a little kid um it's that's some pretty uh messed up stuff man they're she's yeah. just with her family like she's got a uh, an older brother who's a couple years older um and then her parents they're just like chilling in their home and then uh, i think they're talking about the news or something and then the dad looks out the window he just sees things on fire and missiles raining down and he's like oh man you know and then <laughs> yeah. they don't even have time to to go to the basement or 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 even try to escape or anything like then he just sees all these bombs dropping and then next thing you know a bomb hits um their home and and then 
the mom's just torn to shreds and, and the father's like split apart. And with his dying breath, he, he tells his kids to look after each other. And, and the kids are like pretty messed up too. It's a miracle that they survived. That's some pretty, uh, that's a pretty grim way to start the story. Yeah. That's pretty intense. So I, I've actually never read this. And this is the first time you're hearing about this story, but it's the whole idea of America versus Canada is just on some level for me. It's, just, it's funny, it's, right? It's amusing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's amusing. One of the things that uh, I, I noticed uh, when I was flipping through the, the first issue, there's a, a small little uh, letter or uh, like an editorial column from Brian K. Vaughn. And, and he, he mentions how, um, you know how a, a lot of comics have letters columns and, and there's always a contest for, for fans and readers to, to name, to come up with the name for the letters column. He said that his original thought was he wanted to name the letters column post versus mail. <laughs> Cause uh, I guess that's what, uh, that's what that's you call what Canadians it in, uh, call the mail. Canada. <laughs> so there, there's definitely self-awareness in terms of uh, just the, I guess, funny aspect or, or comedic aspect of imagining a war between the U.S. and Canada. Yeah, yeah, it's, there's definitely uh, a lighthearted or a humorous aspect to the story. Um, even, even the members of the 2-4, like, I don't know, just like the way they joke around or the way they get into stuff, like when, uh, I can't remember her name, like the one soldier, uh, steals the robot and there's the the native guy who they're basically arguing back and forth they're like you know the lady's like well i should i should be the one to fire on them because it's ironic and i'm part french and blah 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 and then the native guy would be like, was like well like what's more ironic than me firing on them because they stole my land and blah 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 and so they're they're sort of like going back and forth and stuff breaks out like they actually like a fight breaks out and she actually just runs and jumps in and like steals the robot <laughs> the guy's all bummed out about it she's like yeah sorry for stealing your thunder but uh this kind of had to happen so it's, it's it's that kind of thing most of the the scenes are written i don't want to say tongue-in-cheek but there's this this contrast to where there's this very graphic stuff that's going on uh, but there's almost sort of a, a humorous or a slightly funny sort of take on it. Yeah, yeah, there's a mirth to it. I was yeah, just... he doesn't take himself too seriously, although the subject yeah. matter is serious. Yeah, exactly. Uh, along the lines of, of what you just mentioned, there is also this scene where one of the soldiers talks about how uh, Superman is Canadian. <laughs> that, was, that was one of my favorite scenes, actually. Yeah, because... I don't remember why they were talking about it, but he says, I think it might've been because he had a, the, the, the shield tattooed on his arm or something. And he starts going off on how Superman is Canadian. Like the, I guess the, the idea is that America is like metropolis. It's, it's this, uh, you know, bustling wonderland that's mostly run by greedy people like Lex Luthor. Whereas <laughs> uh, Canada is like Krypton, you know, it's a peaceful peaceful planet that has a uh, you know amazing stuff um you know uh, it's just funny to to think of it in those terms to to think of superman you know the the guy who represents truth justice in the american way and some canadians <laughs> claiming him to be canadian 
<laughs> no, what was what was really funny about it though was his whole thing, like his his whole reasoning and telling that story was in his mind the whole character was about like how great Canada is. Like they they created the character to tell everybody how yeah. great Canada is. He's like, that's perfectly the point, right? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, okay. But actually it's that same guy, like right at the end of the story, Albert was just talking about that ender. Um, that's one of the parts that really got me because that same kid with the Superman shirt just gets wrecked. Like he literally gets his head blown off. And then that's what sparks that final line from uh, from Amber. I think I called her Amanda earlier. Sorry, but yeah, that's what sparks that that final line. She mm-hmm. says, um, "You're definitely right about one thing. There's no Superman out there." And so this is the part where she's looking down at her friend's body after he just got basically torn up, like headless. There's blood everywhere, and that's when she says that final line because you know what really happens when you blow up a kid's parents. You don't get some noble defender of justice reference to Superman, you get mm-hmm. me. So mm-hmm. it's, they're contrasting that ideal of, of like you were just saying, Drew, truth, justice, the American way. And, you know, you have all this kind of a, a glamorous, idealistic, um, rose-tinted lenses on, and you're, you're looking at the world kind of like through, the, through a kid's eyes. Like you, you saw at the beginning of the story where she's sitting in the living room and she's all secure with her family and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's a contrast between that and what's actually real and what she's actually become. And that's, that's part of what makes it so powerful. It's like, no, this is not a story about an idealistic hero. And there's no, in a sense, there's no glory or there's no romanticism in, in what happens and what this does to people. There's just the decisions that you have to make and the consequences that you have to live with or die with because of those decisions. Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of ways, even though, like you mentioned, there is a sense of lightheartedness and, and humor to it. it. It is, it feels like the emotional core of the story is tragic more than anything else. It's, yeah. it's heavy. Um, yeah. there, there's like, I think that's one of the things that I liked about the story was how they, it's got all the the trappings of of like what you would ex- what you would want from a you know, cool action comic. You know, there's there's explosions, there's gigantic mecha, uh, cool armor, and and just like futuristic designs of weaponry and stuff like that. Uh, but at the end of the day, the emotional component um, involving the characters is is what that's that's probably what I remember more than. Uh, anything else you know of course the visuals are a key aspect and I remember the the general style of the designs of for the machinery and stuff but the the emotional aspect was something that stuck with me even after all these years of uh, after the after the time I read the story a few years ago that's what I still remember of it yeah yeah absolutely um just just a quick uh, side note too. You're talking about some of the the designs on the machinery. That is that's another thing I wanted to mention that, mm-hmm. that caught my eye. Uh, the mechanical design is just really really cool. It's it's essentially Steve Skrulls just doing essentially his his own version of Mecha or his own version of Mechs. Yeah. Um, it's not it's not like Pacific Rim type type stuff, but it kind of reminds me of a. Uh... 
BattleTech, but like a cleaner yeah. looking BattleTech. Yeah, yeah. Another thing that really caught my eye, I don't know like where he got or why, you know, why he finally settled on the design that he did for the American airships, but they do look really similar to uh, those early designs for uh, the Germans were trying to develop uh, this aircraft in, I think, the Second World War before they, you know, before they really perfected uh, the jet engine to be what it was, but they were messing with these other aircraft on the side. Uh, that looked a little bit like flying saucers. There are these bell-shaped, like helmet-shaped type things with, with gigantic propellers on the bottom, and that's, that's how they would get it off the ground, and they were experimenting with, I guess, trying to use jet engines somehow in that. Um, but these, these airships that they have, the ones that look like flying saucers with the, with the big bell or something on top, they look very similar to those. So I wonder, you know, if he was just influenced by that design at all, but... It just caught my eye because they look like um, versions of those that can make it all the way up into the air and kind of sit there at like <laughs> at like a, a pretty considerable height and just sit there for a while. Yeah, he yeah. probably had access to like, all, uh, not access, he probably got inspired by all sorts of things and, and just used his imagination to extrapolate how technology would evolve because the, the story is supposed to take place in like, hundred years from now or something, right? Like there, it's more of a futuristic society, but not, not so crazy far in the future that they've got um, like teleportation devices or stuff like that. Yeah. I don't know, like in a hundred years, if American Canada still exists, that could be pretty fictional. True. That, oh, that's a good point. <laughs> from what I remember, don't the mechs look like giant robot dogs, basically? Some of them do. Um, so they have the ones that look like dogs, but there's other ones too. That are just like, like giant tanks or something, right? Kind of like bipedal, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so there's those. There's even like a quadruped one, a really, really big one that you see, I think, right towards the end. Mm. Um, yeah, but I'm looking at the first, no, second page of the first issue. And it's like, so in her childhood, it was like 2112. So yeah, a, a, about 100 years, a little bit more into the future. Mm -hmm. yeah that's some good stuff good stuff it's a good book we stand on guard by brian k vaughn and steve scross matt hollingsworth i think that was from what 2015 i think 2015 published by image comics i you should probably be, be able to get that in a hardcover, hardcover or trade paperback collection I'm pretty sure it's on comiXology as well good stuff okay. All right, so so next up on the docket, my my recommendation is a pretty short comic. It's a a one shot, forty eight page comic, and it's a Marvel comic. It's called The Punisher: The End. <laughs> it's written by Garth Ennis, drawn by Richard Corbin, and colored by Lee Luridge. So this comic came out in two thousand four. It might have even been close to the time when uh, the Punisher movie came out, the one that had uh, Thomas Jane playing Frank Castle. So it, it came out in that era. And, and we've talked about one of our earliest episodes of Between the Gutters. We talked about um, Garth Ennis's run on the Punisher Max series that was on our, our Marvel Top 25. Uh, and this is a natural um, outcropping of, of that 
series. This is a, a Max book, meaning it's it was just Marvel's uh, mature readers line line. Not that there's anything too crazy in here, but it, it's got you know swearing and stuff, and it's certainly uh, more violent than your typical comic. Uh, but here, let me let me tell you guys the premise of the Punisher, the end. So, it, in terms of timeline, when it takes place, it, it's funny because the very first caption in the comic it, it says soon <laughs> <laughs> nice yeah so what what happens is this comes at a point where the punisher has been in sing sing um for i don't remember how many years maybe like 10 years or something um so he's an older man at this point and what happens is you don't the nice thing about the comic is that uh they don't just explain everything and exposit everything. You kind of have to piece things together uh, through bits of dialogue on your own. But from what I understand, uh, Punisher has been in prison. He's in, in supermax security um, for all, all these years. And then uh, meanwhile, out in the world, uh, society has just been deteriorating to the point where uh, World War III happens. Um, I, I, think, I think it's like China, or I think it started off in the Middle East and then and then uh, like North Korea got involved and then China got involved. And once that happened, it all just went downhill from there. So this is a story about um, a literal nuclear holocaust uh, happening. And the reason why the Punisher survives is that when, when the bombs start dropping, um, he's already in prison in, in a lower uh, area of the prison and it, it starts off really messed up because the warden thinking that it's the end of the world anyway he just tells the guards to execute all the prisoners so the guards are just walking through all this by all the cells and just shooting up all the all the inmates <laughs> and they're going down to the bottom level um to get the punisher at this point they don't even really remember who he is or, or what he's done but uh right when they get there a blackout happens or, or something happens um and you, you can't really see what what happens um it's kind of left to the reader's imagination but the punisher ends up uh killing the people that tried to kill him and and uh next thing you know um and again this is all done without exposition you can just kind of piece things together from dialogue the Punisher uh, spends the next year with like nine other survivors in a bunker. And then one year later, he, like everybody else in the bunker uh, died somehow. And it's just oh. him and this one other guy named, uh, I think his name's Paris. And the two of them rise up out of the bunker. I guess the prison had a bunker or something, like a bomb shelter. Uh, that's how they were able to survive for a year. But one year passes, they end up leaving the bunker and the Punisher is going to New York City because at the time uh, he, when he was in the bunker with the survivors, one of the surviving inmates was in their uh, actually designed a secret bunker in New York City underneath the World Trade Center. And he was uh, thrown in prison because he knew too much basically. And the people that paid him to, to design the bunker um, are basically just a cabal of super rich, powerful people like, like your uh, tech tech billionaires and and business people, uh, some senators and 
and things things like that. So that's how the Punisher knows about this bunker in New York City. So he's traveling with his his uh with this guy Paris um, to New York City in a nuclear holocaust. And as soon as they step outside, they're just getting bombarded with radiation. The even though uh, World War Three happened a year ago, the sky is still on fire. Um, they're they're walking along the the highway, and it's just a bunch of like like hundreds and hundreds of cars uh, that are just parked there for the past year, and you know decimated skeletons inside them, and um, you know everything is is a ruin. Um, and they finally make it to New York City, and they're they're getting hit pretty heavy with the radiation to the point where like flecks of skin are falling off and they're just bleeding from their different pores. But they make it to the bunker that, that uh, the Punisher learned about. And when they make it there, it turns out that this bunker was so well constructed that um, like it's been, people are able to survive in there um, for, for all this time. And supposedly it has capabilities so they can keep on living for the next hundred years. What ends up happening is uh, the Punisher wanted to go to this bunker to kill these people because they were the ones that essentially caused World War III to happen. They were the ones that that were so greedy and and so obsessed with uh, protecting their wealth and and obtaining money and power that they permitted this world to get destroyed in a nuclear holocaust because they knew they had enough resources to create not only this bunker but throughout the country, they, there were a few other bunkers that are just so well fortified that they could survive for over a hundred years with the, with the very best uh, medical technicians and everybody who could you know, ensure comfortable living as well as survival of the human race so they could reproduce. Um, the, and in case, in case of any emergencies, they even had like frozen embryos and, you know, is it it there to ensure that the human race would survive, even though they caused the world to be destroyed. And, you know, they've got to wait like hundreds of years for uh, the radiation to dissipate. Um, they, they didn't care because they had the power to, to keep on to keep on living even after they wrecked the world. So the Punisher comes finally gets to the bunker um, and he's the Punisher. He's going to kill bad guys. That's what he does. So, <laughs> even though those coming, bad right? guys are the last bad guys on earth, <laughs> these are the last bad guys on earth, and no, the Punisher when they're the last bad guys on earth. Yup, like there, there's nobody else. There, there's no crime to speak of because there is no one alive um, to commit crimes. It's just these people, comfortable, powerful, rich people, hiding in a bunker, um, getting ready to repopulate the planet for the day that it's safe to go back outside. And the Punisher comes up on them, and and before he's about to blow them all away um, with with a couple of submachine guns, one of the guys is like, "Wait, before you do this, let me tell you, let me tell you this." And he he basically goes on to describe like why it's why um, it's important that they keep on living, you know, because without them, there's no way for the human race to continue. And he, he you know he he just like gives gives him this this uh he's trying to sell Frank Castle, 
You know, he's trying to sell them. Trying <laughs> 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 to sell them. It's, it's yeah. hilarious. He's trying to get his way out of a a, a situation with Frank Castle, yeah. the Punisher. <laughs> exactly. It's funny, dude. This is a white collar dude. Yeah. yeah. And and at this point, Frank Castle, he's dying from radiation poisoning. You know, he like he he's not gonna live past the next day anyway. He like his his ears falling off, man. Uh, like snot and blood is dribbling out of his eyeballs like his his flesh is just flaking off his hair is falling out in clumps he knows he's gonna die but before he dies he he wants to kill these last bad people on earth and this guy is trying to sell him as to why that's not a good idea (laughs) because because he's telling frank without us humanity is not gonna survive (laughs) <laughs> and of course Frank just blows him away <laughs> he kills them all man he just he mows them all down and and then that one dude that's been traveling with him Paris ever since they left the prison he's like he's like why, why did you do that man what what about what he said what about what about humanity and then Frank he just looks at him and he says the human race You've seen what that leads to. (laughs) (laughs) And then he kills him too. (laughs) Well, for dramatic effect, I think what ends up, doesn't what end up happening is, um, doesn't Frank ask him something where he's like, where, where it's revealed that the guy lied to him about what he was in prison for or something. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So, like, for yeah. the past year, the, the guy had told Frank that he was in there for a small-time arsony, arson. Yeah. And, and uh, I guess what, 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 what really happened was he, was he was setting fires for insurance money, but one day he set a fire that not only took out the building, but accidentally uh, took out uh, a kindergarten next door and a couple dozen kids died. So, I guess, <laughs> you think that's funny, Albert? I was laughing at the fact that you were laughing. <laughs> fair, that's fair. That's fair. So, so, so the guy was was just keeping the secret, but I think Frank knew the whole time. And at the end, um, yeah, Frank was like, "I just wanted to see if you'd admit it," and and then. Um, these are the two last people alive on earth at this point and they're both dying anyway, but yeah. Frank still takes the time to choke him to death. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> they're uh, both dying from so radiation punishing. sickness and yeah. Frank still decides to choke him to death with his bare hands. And then uh, the last couple pages of the book, uh, Frank just comes out of the bunker. Uh, you know, the sky's still on fire. He's walking through a ruined city filled with skeletons his uh his body's falling apart and um in his mind he just thinks it's uh you know 1976 and he's having a picnic in the park with his family maybe this time he'll be in time to save him and he just walks into the fire and that's the end now were they the actual last survivors because in the story there are mentioned that there are other bunkers around the country Mm -hmm. so they explain that part too because uh the the guy who was trying to sell Frank, he tells him that the other bunkers have fallen apart. One of them, I think, was uh, somehow destroyed. And then another one, the people might have gone crazy and like killed each other. So that's why he was trying to emphasize to Frank how critical it was for them to continue on. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I just can't imagine a healthy human population being birthed from their offspring. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I do think it's a fitting end for the Punisher, though, because for a guy whose sole mission in life is to punish evil, mm-hmm. what's a more fitting end than to wipe out the last remnants of evil for sure ever, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Even if, if even if that those final last vestiges of evil are the last remaining uh, signs of life on the planet, if He's that's committed. what it takes, he will always punish. Yeah, right. exactly. It's, it's partially the end. He's not done. It's not ended until he's punished. Everybody can punish. Exactly. Yup. <laughs> exactly. Yup. That's funny. Yeah, Richard no, he's, Corbin's he's a great artist too. Yeah, yeah I, I remember is... reading that a while ago. I, just, I forgot the detail about what happened to the bunkers, but that that whole story was both like grim but like comical at the same time too. Just this, like, just Castle just like is cast to the very end in the face of of everything else. He's just like, you know. I got nothing else to do, but I'm going to finish my job. He is uncompromisingly the Punisher. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's one of the best Punisher stories you can ever find. I will say that I'm glad that you um, spoiled it because that's it's one of those stories that I don't think you can talk about without giving away those details, you know? Yeah, so, and, and it's such a short story um, that... And it's a, it's a short story. It, and I, I don't think that I don't think it's something where someone who just picks it up and reads it needs to necessarily. Like I don't think the shock value is is necessarily mm-hmm. all that important for it. It's it's yeah. There's it's no there's no twist. Still. Yeah. There's no twist that the story hinges on. You know it. Yeah. It it really is just a very simple story about the Punisher punishing the last people that he can punish. Yeah. Uh, in the midst of a nuclear holocaust. But I did think one of the, reading it um, again uh, right before uh, this podcast, it did, one of the things that kind of jumped out was how I think the, the anger at, uh, you know, basically the 1%, right? Like that's, that's what stands out in this comic. It's like Garth Ennis has written a lot of Punisher comics where the Punisher went after all sorts of different uh, evils, right? He's, you know, he's, he's gone after... He's gone after drug lords, drug lords, uh, rapists, killers, um, corrupt generals, uh, war criminals, uh, you know, slave traders, human traffickers. He's he's killed like the worst of society or not. not, I wouldn't even call him part of society. He's, He's just killed the worst of the of the bad people that exist on this planet. The worst of the of the of the criminals. Right. And then. Now you got this story where he's basically going after like people who are so rich that they neglect the entire world. And if it feels like that's the kind of statement or intent uh, behind the story, it's like not, not every kind of criminal um, is the kind of guy that gets arrested in cuffs because he gets caught doing a shoplifting crime or, or committing a murder or, or something like that. Like there are people that all the time they get away with what they do because they got power, they got money, they got wealth, they got resources, privilege. And with all of that, they're able to just live their lives to the maximum comfort that they uh, could ever imagine and hope for, no matter uh, you know, who else they neglect or who, who suffers because of the 
the the choices that they make they don't care because they got what they they got what they want and and that's all the wealth and power that they could ever wish for but this story is is kind of like a revenge fantasy on that in a, in a certain way you know it's like no matter how safe they thought they were the punisher still got them <laughs> yeah but it's but it's actually actually not a thing about it it's, it's also really comical because there's this nice duality to where Punisher is Punisher to the very end. Mm-hmm. And these people are so power and money hungry to the very end, even when the power and money no longer matter. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> There's definitely something funny about how, how they still feel like a sense of comfort from, from that in a world where nothing really exists. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what, they're going to be in bunker for what, 50 to 100 years procreating. And it's like, just to, just to perpetuate their own self-existence and they're, they're like, and you're going to come at it with what? Maybe 20 people and you're like, all right, we're going to make a new thing called money. Um, yeah. Value. It's like, so it's just, it's funny. Like he's trying to sell Frank Castle on let us be who we are. And Frank's like, okay, I'm, that means I have to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's also something humorous in that same aspect of, um, I don't know, just sort of like the, the, um, uh, how do you say it? Like the unstoppable, what is it? The unstoppable force meeting the immovable object. Yeah. It's, it's the same thing, right? It's just complete nihilism on both sides, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's how it ends. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a very grim story as you would expect from, the Punisher, but the fact that it's also a post-apocalyptic story just dials that factor up by 11. <laughs> In some ways, he was also just making, I think, a, a very subtle um, commentary about like the, the, the unwavering aspect of certain people's attitudes when in the face of what you know to be completely absurd, mm-hmm. you hold on to things of no value. Yeah. Whereas, in the face of absurdity, he's holding on to a principle. Right. As, as absurd as the principle is, it's a principle, whereas they're just holding on to some um, um, physical, you know, thing that doesn't really have any actual intrinsic value. Exactly. That's a, that's a really good point, man. I didn't think about that ahead of time, but that's a very smart observation. Very true. This, the nice thing about this comic, too, is that it, it's pretty short. Um, so you, and not, I don't think it's too hard to find. Should be able to find it in back issue bins or um, even uh, you know digitally. I'm sure like it's on Comixology or Marvel was Unlimited it, and stuff. Was it collected in the um, Max Omnibus? Uh, I don't actually own the Omnibus, so I'm not sure. But I would hope it would be collected in the same Omnibus. I think it was collected in one of the the deluxe hard. Uh, definitely collected in the hardcovers. I think right. Back in the day, man, like maybe like around 2006, they made a hardcover that had some of the Punisher Max one-shots that Garth Ennis wrote and the, the end was in it. And then there was another story called uh, The Cell and another story called uh, The Tiger, Tiger, I think. Tiger? Yeah. Oh. Or Tiger, Tiger, I, f- I forget. But uh, yeah, there, that's, that's gotta be long out of print by now. So. Oh, but it was never collected as part of the Garth Ennis', Garth Ennis Max run on Punisher? Not in the numbered volumes. Okay. Do you think it's collected in the omnibus? <laughs> I would. I hope so, man. That's. I'm not sure because I don't own it. That's what uh, I just asked, Albert. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. 
It's like, wait, I'm hearing an instant replay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because I'm curious because I, I do have the, the end single issue, but I don't have the other one shots, I think. And oh, okay. I may or may not have bought the omnibus, mostly because I, I still have the, the single volumed hardcover hardcovers. Nice. The artwork in this comic is cool. I, I, I didn't really talk too much about Richard Corbin's art. But uh, the dude is a master, dude. So he, he's like one of those guys that, that's been around for a long time. Yeah. I think, I think he's like 80 years old now, man. He, Whoa. Yeah, he's, he's getting up there in, in, in years. So he's had a long, really long career. Did a lot of uh, has a very stuff. specific look. Yeah. He's got very, a signature look. Yeah. When you look at one of his pages, you, know man, you just know it's him. Yeah. yeah. He draws people in this way that for the most part, they don't look ideal. They look, I don't want to say like, they're very round and I, yeah. I don't really want to say like cute or chubby or anything, it's, but it's unsettling. It's, it's unsettling. Exactly. Right. They're yeah. chubby, but it's, there's something kind of gross about it. Yeah. Yeah. He's known and, for a lot of uh, horror kind of comics. And yeah. in this comic, you know, he's drawing post-apocalyptic nuclear wastelands and yeah like it, it's totally right up his alley you, so you're saying that he drew the people in the bunkers bloated or fat chubby or in general i just I his think, style yeah just his style and he always gives them the thing that i always remember about the way he draws is he it feels like he always gives people really their their eyes are always bugging out yeah <laughs> that's yeah. the way that i always like see it when i'm looking at his work but there, it's that's part of what makes it unsettling. But it's it's done very well. Yeah, their eyes kind of look like they're bugging out, and he always gives people distinct noses. Yeah, so and their teeth too. Yeah, like, and there's always this weird grimace that's like just it's chilling. Yeah, but yeah. the the fascinating aspect too is is that he's all he's always able to give people um, different faces. Yeah, so. His people don't all look like the same. Like they, it, it actually looks like these are like a bunch of different people who are um, just inhabiting the same world. Like you wouldn't, like it's it's not like they got a bunch of the same. Uh, like he doesn't have a specific type of jawline that he always draws on every single one of his people or anything like that. Like everybody yeah. has a unique head and face. Like from what I remember of Punisher, the end, like at the end when Punisher's talking to these survivors, the, the guys that are in the bunker, the way that he draws them, they seem like uncharacteristically happy from what I remember for like, for people who are surviving in the world falling apart around them. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> this guy's like, got a massive smile. Yeah. It's, it's creepy, but it's fitting, you know? Totally. Yep, so that's my pick. Have you read this one, Zach? No, no, I actually have not read that one. I've read, uh, I think it's like Punisher Christmas or Nativity Scene or whatever, and that's a pretty funny one. Yeah, oh, that was a good Silent one. Christmas? What's that? Or Silent, Silent Night, right? Silent Night? Yeah, yeah, that's what it was called. That, 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 was, was, that was a good one. Isn't that by uh, Jason Aaron? Yeah, that one was by, yeah. the Punisher Christmas story was Jason Aaron. That was a yeah. really good one. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm giving myself a little pat in the back for remembering that. 
<laughs> you know stuff, man. That's why you're on the show. <laughs> <laughs> this ain't nepotism. <laughs> I don't know, you guys. I'm here purely on merit. <laughs> All right, Albert. What you All got? Right. So it's on me, and um, I... So I want to say that my choice was actually inspired by your choice, oddly enough. Um, so I we have a spreadsheet, and I was looking at uh, your choice for post-apocalyptic picks, and you chose Punisher the End, and I saw that, and I was like, yeah, man, that's a really good choice for a post-apocalyptic story. And I just fell down the rabbit hole because that came out of a series of comics that Marvel was doing at the time where they were envisioning the the final the issues the end of all of not all but a lot of their series so i heard marvel's of, bringing it back uh yeah, yeah there, there's a couple ones that got announced recently yeah i think doctor strange had one or is having one uh i don't know who else is on that list but so we had a fantastic for the end uh there was, was wolverine Iron Man. the end huh Iron Man, was he one of them? It, it might have been one of the uh, later ones. I, I never read it. I never picked it yeah. up. Yeah, I, I don't remember the Fantastic Four. The end. Alan Davis. Yeah, that was a six-issue miniseries. Oh, yeah. by Alan Davis. Yeah. yeah, he wrote Andrew. It. I like that one a lot. Yeah. He wrote Android. Yeah. Andrew, Andrew it. it. Oh, Andrew it. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, sorry, I, I, had, I heard. He wrote Android. Android. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Davis. He's the one who did. Um, um, a he did nail, the nail and then another nail, right? Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. Man, so, okay, now I have to check the Fantastic Four at the end because now I'm curious. Because yeah. I like him as a, as a creator, so I'm really curious about the Fantastic Four at the end. Yeah. There was also X Men The End by Christopher Sebastopol Claremont. <laughs> yeah. It was 18 <laughs> issues long, so it never really ended. <laughs> of course it had to be, right? <laughs> I don't know if it was 18 issues long, but it felt like it was 18 issues long. <laughs> <laughs> No, it really was because it was a it was a trilogy of miniseries, and each miniseries was six issues. Really, Christopher Sandwich Claremont needed eighteen <laughs> issues to tell his version of the end of the X Men. Well, there are a lot of X Men, you know, an issue per character. Oh, I wish it was that. Honestly, that would have made sense <laughs> if he just went through every character and gave them their final note. I would have been that would have been more interesting to me than. What it actually was. So just going back. So do you recommend Alan Davis's Fantastic Four the end? No, yeah, I'm going over the list out. right now. I'm giving context. But, oh, okay. Uh, but yeah, Fantastic Four the end was. I recommend that, but I, yeah. that's not a Albert's specific choice. Yeah. No, I was just asking Joel because like I like Alan Davis as a creator, so I would check it out anyhow. But I'm I'm glad to know that's still on the level because his consistency. Yeah. Yeah. yeah totally, okay. man. There was even a Marvel Universe the end. I think wasn't there. I think that one was might have been the first Jim one. That, that was a Jim Starlin joint, man. Yeah. I, it was a Thanos story. I never actually read that one, but I just remember it just because it was Jim Starlin doing Thanos. I, I get that one confused with Infinity Abyss. I I think I have <laughs> one of those. I don't remember which one it was. I got to check my uh, my collection, man, and, and I'll get back to you. Yeah. Um, yeah, so all that just to say that Marvel did a – uh, several series of these uh, stories and the one uh, the Punisher was one of the the, the better ones in it and uh, it, it always stuck with me but there was another story in that series that 
left an impact on on me as well and that is the hulk the end um mm. i just want to make a note of it that uh there's a a secondary title when you look in the comic and it's called the last titan which i think is yeah there we go mm-hmm. it's by uh, peter david art by dale keon I'm, I'm not sure if i'm not pronouncing that right i'm sorry um the colorist is dan kemp and the inker is joe weems it was made by marvel and published around august 2002 it's it's a single issue as well so um i want to go into what what the hulk the end was about so the story starts off and you see an old man walking through a devastated wasteland and what you find out is this is Bruce Banner, who is the, um, he's the, the human form of the Hulk. And as the story progresses, you realize that there isn't anyone left on this planet. It's just Bruce Banner surviving in the wasteland. And really most of the comic is just his inner monologue. It's him talking to, if not himself, then it's him talking to the Hulk. And it's, what, what you're watching is you're watching him survive in this land. So the only things that are left in this world is him and these irradiated cockroaches that, that just roam the, the wastelands. And um, in a brief way, he, he touches on the various parts of the Marvel Universe. And you know that a lot of time has passed and you know basically all of the marvel characters have died and i wanted to mention this one scene where he he gives a brief explanation for um how things got this way um uh so i'm reading the scene here and it says oh shoot when oh shoot sorry uh, i need to go back to it Mm-hmm. Uh, but oh, thought I had it. Okay. I just remember uh, a lot of these uh, splash pages uh, being pretty interesting. I'm not too big a fan of uh, the inking on this, in yeah. this comic. It, it looks a little too uh, late '90s, early 2000s top cow to me. Yeah. Uh, but like some of the splash pages are pretty cool and I, I'm flipping through my copy of it right now. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, I do see like scenes of uh, like, I think it's, it's like some kind of a nuclear or, or maybe, I don't know if it's cause it's the Hulk, if it's gamma. <laughs> yeah. Some kind of a Holocaust where everybody's all these different places are getting destroyed. Like the, there's a picture right. of the Eiffel tower getting blown up and yeah. people getting blown up on, on bridges and stuff like that. So there's some kind of a, Something yeah. that caused. So I just, uh, well, I just, I was, I found the part and I was going to read it to you, but his explanation basically goes When the government proposed the costumed adventurers memorial park after all the casualties during the Hell on Earth War, I never thought it would actually happen, much less last, but it did. They're, they're all laid to rest here those who fell during Hell on Earth and then those in the Outer World War, even those who just went from old age, all here, all gone. And none of them lived to see after, to see after, 
everything they went through to protect humanity from alien enemies, from evil forces who wanted to enslave or eliminate, eliminate mankind. None of them lived to see mankind fall beneath the one enemy humans were helpless before. Other humans. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the revelation is that humans ended up destroying themselves uh, after all that. And uh, the Hulk okay. in that moment, he's... The Hulk in that moment, in typical Hulk fashion, he just... He just hates everybody because everybody's been pestering him his entire life so in that moment the hulk there there's a later line that talk where uh, bruce banner talks about how the hulk feels validated that these you know these humans that hated him and tried to hunt him down they they ended up destroyed himself and he felt vindicated for hating them this whole time <laughs> and, uh, it says here but he derived a, a sort of grim satisfaction from it, as if somehow seeing mankind destroying itself was some sort of validation of the opinion he'd held for so long. The Hulk didn't care that, that the initial bombings were the results of terrorists acting outside of government mandates. He didn't care that no one wanted war, but that retaliation was the only possible response. He didn't care that it all spiraled out of control. He didn't care about millions upon millions of innocent people dying. He didn't care that the remaining heroes, the defenders of mankind, died in those blasts, just as did their villainous opponents, because nuclear holocaust doesn't care about good guys and bad guys. Okay, nuclear, not gamma. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what ends up happening and how the Hulk survives that is the, when, when, he sees, uh, when the Hulk sees humanity destroying themselves, he jumps off into a secluded cave and he buries himself for for like years to come after that and there's a moment in the story where the hulk eventually digs himself out of out of the out of the cave and bruce banner is is he's reverted back to his bruce banner form and this this entity known as the recorder shows up and it's this robot whose whose job is just to record um, history and he's having an exchange with the Hulk or he's having an exchange with Bruce Banner and he's basically saying that I came down here uh, and I was sent by all the other alien planets and they sent me down to see you know what happened to humans and Bruce Banner's like was it because they wanted to learn from our mistakes you know he he wanted to you know give it some sort of meaning and the recorder just looks at him and he goes, no, they just wanted to make sure that you were all gone. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he basically says that all of the other alien races looked at humanity and they just saw them as just being a troublesome species. And we just want to make sure that the, you're, you're done down to the very last of you because we don't want the potential for you to come back and like trouble us any further out in out in space. The Kree and the Skrulls formed an alliance specifically so they could celebrate the end of hum humanity. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And at the end of that conversation, he asks the recorder. The recorder asks of Bruce, and he says, "Do you want me? Do you want me to kill you?" And Bruce Bruce Banner at the time goes, "No, I uh, no, I just want to. I just." 
you know, he, he says no. He turns him down. And the recorder basically says to him, I'm going to leave this um, recording device here to watch you for the rest of your days. But, but you know, other than that, you know, when, when, you, when you're dead or when, when the, you're finally gone, I'll come down here to retrieve it. And the recorder goes back into space. But there's this monologue where the recorder says, I forget what he specifically says, but he he more or less says, you're going to wish that I had killed you, even though I can't really do that. And, you know, fast forward to where Bruce Banner is in his current timeline. That That's the issue. Uh, you see that uh, Bruce Banner has aged significantly and... Uh, the radiation has boosted the Hulk's healing ability so much that uh, the Hulk can't die. And uh, by uh, and because of that, Bruce Banner can't die either. And what you the next scene is what you see is um, Bruce Banner is old and he's just so sick of living that he throws himself off a cliff. And what ends up happening is the Hulk the Hulk's survival instinct kicks in and he knows that Bruce Banner is trying to end it all so he reverts to the Hulk and you know no uh, harm done no harm done exactly <laughs> so Bruce Banner is stuck in this eternal living hell where he can't die because the Hulk won't allow him to die and they're just these like long scenes of just Bruce Banner being driven mad by his own loneliness uh, the the following scene after that is he's in this cave and he's just sleeping by himself and he begins to envision this beautiful woman and you know he's just he's just driven by his lust and just by this joy just to see another human being and it all turns out to be just a dream and and as the story progresses uh this this back and forth between the two of them you know just bruce banner looking for this final the final release of death and the hulk not wanting to die and just wanting to survive forever like it's it becomes an extension of their of of the struggle and the animosity that the two of them have always held since the beginning of their you know uh of their, you know, cursed creation because the Hulk just hates everyone. And in some ways the Hulk has destroyed or been the reason that everything in Bruce Banner's life has been destroyed. But from the Hulk's perspective, Bruce Banner has been the only weak link to humanity when uh, all the Hulk really wants is to be left alone. <laughs> You know, so yeah. at this point, they just hate each other. Towards the end of the story, um, Bruce Banner begins to see these visions and uh, he sees visions of his loved ones and he realizes this is it. This is the final moment. Like, I can feel my body giving out on me. I, I can finally be with, you know, all my friends and all my loved ones. But the Hulk... The Hulk knows that something's going on, even though Bruce Banner hasn't explicitly said, you know, this is this is happening. And he knows he knows that uh on an 
emotional level, Bruce Banner, Bruce Banner's got something. Bruce Banner is aware of something happening. So in the final moments, as um, as Bruce Banner begins to feel, you know, the sweet embrace of death, uh, he's he's pleading with the Hulk, and he's saying, "Please, Hulk, just let this end. Let me die. We can we can be at peace. We'll be with our friends. We'll be with our loved ones. We don't have to be alone anymore." And the Hulk is just responding by saying how much he hates everybody, and he hates, um, you know, he doesn't want to be with anybody, and he hates Banner. And the very final scene of the comic is the uh, the very final scene of the comic is Bruce Banner has turned into the Hulk, and it's the Hulk now talking to himself, and he's thinking to himself that he can never allow himself to turn back into Bruce Banner because if he does, Bruce Banner will die, and as a result, he will be the Hulk forever. And the very final panel is just him sitting on this desolate world where there's no signs of life. And all he says is, Hulk feels cold. <laughs> yeah. So that's, uh, that is my post-apocalyptic story. And um, I wanted to, I wanted to mention why I just decided on a story like this. And, um, you know, it might be shallow to say, but, well, one, it's a really good story. It's a, it's a really well done, like, drama about, it, it's kind of a one-man play about this guy who just hates certain aspects of his own personality. But it's also, the, the, the reason that I chose it was for people who don't necessarily read too many comics, it's a short comic. It's something you can pick up and read through and I think you can ingest or digest all of that drama and all of uh, the story and I, I think it's a great experience just to read in that one sitting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even though there are bits of the story that tie into the greater Marvel Universe, I don't think it's a story that necessarily requires anyone to know anything about the Marvel Universe. Uh, Peter David gives you just enough information to let you know he gives you the skeletons for a world that exists for the hulk this could be any story uh for anyone because you know the hulk lived he loved he had people in his life bruce banner had people in his life and that's kind of what you need to know you don't necessarily need to know you know who rick jones was but it's you you get the impression that this was someone that was important to Bruce Banner. You know, mm -hmm. you don't need to know who Marlo was, but you get the impression that she was part of his life. And I, I think that's enough of an emotional draw. Again, you don't need to go back and dig through, you know, all of the old issues of the Hulk in order to understand what this was all about or what this meant, you know? Yeah, like, definitely. Just enough. It's one of those stories that, truly stands alone like you don't need to yeah, you don't yeah. need to know anything because all that you need to all that you do need to know is already contained within the story exactly so interesting note uh peter david actually wrote a really long run on the hulk he wrote him for i think about 10 years um if yeah not at more. least yeah and then he came back after that later on at certain points uh but there are even details in here that uh, for story points that he never really fully got to 
complete at the time. So that that bit of dialogue that I was reading earlier, the the Hell on Earth war, that was something that he always wanted. I, I have a feeling that that was something that he always wanted to. Uh, it was a story that he always wanted to tell, but because he left uh, the Hulk before he could finish it, or you know, not on his own terms. Uh, it was never a story that he could ever get back to. So when you, if you ever read Peter David's work uh, in other comics, you'll see that it's something that he references again and again, hmm. even though there is no actual story where there's a hell on earth war that happens, but he's constantly like putting out tidbits. So I do think that's an interesting um, little thing that he does here where he mentions it in in the future of the Marvel universe, but he never but there is no actual story to reference, you know? Yeah. 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 I actually didn't know that at, at first. Uh, I thought it was just, um, you know, one of those throwaway bits of dialogue to, to make it sound like, you know, the world progressed in the time span between, uh, you know, yeah. And all the time that's passed since yeah. until the point we get to the story, you know, it's just one of those things. Like I, th- I think he, he also called something like an outer world war to, yeah. to make it sound like there was some kind of cosmic battle. Yeah. 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 Like it, like, yeah, it was just stuff like that that I I didn't even like a reference yeah. like what you just shared. It was something that didn't cross my mind at all when when I was looking at it, but it didn't yeah. feel like I needed to know that. But if for exactly. a Peter exactly. David fan um, or or a reader of um, his other stuff, that's one of those things where you're like, oh, that's a cool shout out. Yeah, he's definitely yeah. got connective tissue. Yeah, I'm yeah. Say, but I actually just thought it was something referenced in the context of the story to say there are these events that happened that kind of allowed the, hu- the humanity to eventually get decimated and vanish from the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. And exactly, it's like there are people who like feel like like wait, what is this war? Like, wh- where did it come from? Like, is this like it's like it, it doesn't matter. It's like it's like watching a movie and a character's background involves you know something that happened with with his or her parents. Yeah, yeah. You don't always need to know those details. What you know is that there's something that inf- that informs you about why the character is the way they are yeah. insofar to be plausible as to why they're acting the way they are. Um, and what you're, what the focus is, is the character as they are, not who they were before. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's kind of the rule of world building, right? It's, you don't necessarily have to give like all the details of specific events, but you just have to make us as the reader believe that that was a real event in their world. Yeah. You know? I also like that. Now think about it. At the last page, right, when the Hulk decides that he can't let Bruce Banner become Bruce Banner because then he might actually die and therefore Hulk can no longer exist. Yeah. So in some sense, by becoming the Hulk per- per- permanently, yeah. he actually killed Bruce Banner. So it should be called Bruce Banner the end. That oh. is an interesting way to put it. Yeah, I, I, yeah that's, that's yeah. a really good point. But I think the way that I... Maybe this is a testament to just how much of a masochist I am (laughs) or a glutton for punishment rather. Like the way I always read it was Bruce Banner didn't die in that moment. I think in the Hulk subconscious, Bruce Banner will always live and he will forever be punished or he's trapped within the subconscious of the Hulk knowing that he is never going to get the release of death. Hmm. So that's, that's how I always interpreted it interesting yeah, yeah i i gotta reread the comic because i actually haven't reread it i mean i pulled out my copy just to flip through it while you were talking yeah. about it but um yeah i need to reread the comic to to see because from i think my impression was um that that banner i don't 
I guess I don't know if, for sure if he was able to die when he thought he was dying. But for me, the, the hook of the ending was always this idea that the Hulk, uh, like basically I think he spells it out in the midst of the story where it's like the Hulk only wants two things. The Hulk wants to be the strongest one there is. Yeah. And the Hulk wants to be left alone. Yeah. And he's already been, he's proven that he's the strongest one there is. And now that uh, Banner is gone, the Hulk is gets to be alone because right. I think throughout the story, you get there's not just narration between uh, there's not just Bruce Banner's internal narration, but the Hulk himself has internal narration. And at times they actually uh, respond and interact with each other and they talk yeah. to each other. Yeah. And then it's not until the end of the story, the, the last couple pages, when the Hulk continues his internal narration. Yeah. And you don't hear anything back from Banner. So, yeah. so it, it makes it feel like Banner really could be dead. Um, and, and now the Hulk, he's, he's, got, he's gotten what he's always wanted. Yeah. He's, he's, he gets to be left alone. But it, yeah. it, 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 the way that the ending is framed, I always got the impression, and this is just my interpretation. I don't know yeah. if it's uh, correct. But my interpretation was he got what he wanted. And now it's his chance to slowly discover that what he wanted something that he may end up regretting to 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 be alone you know he he feels cold and lonely yeah. like he he's yeah. always wanted to be alone and now he's he got never it. yeah and yeah. maybe he never necessarily considered what it means to be lonely yeah. because now he's alone he yeah. doesn't even have a banner to to interact with yeah, yeah yeah and it's like all he's doing is just sitting on top of a cliff and over overlooking a, a wasteland yeah and what what else is there? You know, what like, joy is, is, is there in that? <laughs> yeah, is that all he's gonna do uh, for the rest of his existence? It's it's yeah. actually kind of sad because if he it's truly, totally sad. Yeah, if he if he yeah. actually can't die, then he's just gonna keep on living, living in this wasteland, fighting gigantic mutated cockroaches. Yeah, well, <laughs> which he'll keep on losing to and then rehealing. Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing that I wanted to mention just as a as just added information but the thing that made me get that interpretation that it's a curse for the hulk but it's a curse for bruce banner as well because because mm-hmm. the last couple of lines of dialogue between hulk and the bruce and, and bruce banner um it's bruce an exchange begging him he's begging him to let them die yeah so like if if, if he turns into the hulk for all time and he disappears from you know existence what what why would he have to beg the hulk to let them die was that was my interpretation so so when he when he finally becomes the hulk for all time like he gets what he wants but he's going to live in this world and he's trapped with nothing to do and no one to talk to but at the same time it's a curse for banner as well because there's going to be a part of him inside the Hulk's mind just screaming <laughs> to, to die. And he's just going to live forever as the Hulk. He's trapped. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think your interpretation is even more tragic than mine. <laughs> yeah. See, I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> and then someone kicked Bruce Banner in the balls. <laughs> um I wanted to go over the art a little bit. Uh, you mentioned earlier that it's got this very, like, Del Keon does come from that school of 
like 90s image art i would say he's on the better end of it he was was one of uh peter david's artists on the hulk before he before he went over to image and did uh what was it the pit yeah you know i was gonna mention the the, when he looked when he showed the panel with the hulk and i was like looks really looks a lot like the pit yeah Yeah. well yeah (laughs) zach do you remember the pit yeah, no, I remember that. Well. <laughs> so you know who we're talking. You know what artists we're talking about here. <laughs> yeah, and now yeah. that you mention it, yeah, there was something a little familiar looking about that, and you just nailed it. Yeah, I, I was just laughing over here, just thinking about it. Yeah, so it's for those of you who um, don't don't see it in front of you. It's uh, he basically likes to draw like really buff guys with really like defined musculature, just huge dudes. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, I think there's what's the term? Is that rendering? Albert, there's like a lot of rendering on. Not a convincing man in comics unless you have a bunch of bulging muscles everywhere. You know. That's true. You're or you're not a very convincing man. Period. That's (laughs) that's why I've uh, I've um, come to grips with the fact that I'm a beta male, um, maybe even a gamma male in honor of the Hulk. I don't even know exactly. if you can see this, but even even uh, his drawing of, of old man Bruce Banner, he's he's supposed to be like ancient and decrepit, but his his old he's man got Bruce really Banner has a fine musculature. Yeah, he has a six pack, dude. <laughs> he has a six pack, yeah. and it's not yeah. one of those six packs where it's just a skinny dude, and you can see his ribs. Yeah, it looks like an actual six pack. Yeah. <laughs> In his world, everyone is an Adonis. <laughs> yeah. Even old, ancient, decrepit men. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see if I have some of the splash pages though look a lot better. Like I, cause one thing, uh, I noticed is that this, this comic did have two inkers. Um, I think the main inker was Joe Weems. Yeah. He's a name I recognize from a lot of those top cow books. Like I, I'm pretty sure he was inking stuff for like, uh, like Mark Silvestri or, or Michael Turner. Yeah. Um, and there was also some of the inks were also by this guy named live say, I, I don't know uh, if it's live say or live say, but yeah. I'm sure it's just some pen name that a, a dude created. Um, yeah. And I think if, if uh, you were to actually, uh, for those of you who are listening, if you actually flip through the comic or, or look at the digital copy, when you look at certain pages, it, it does look like um, certain pages have different inking and some oh. of the splash pages in particular, they, they just look different from the rest of the comic. That's a good observation. I, I do think some of the splash pages are, are kind of exciting to look at. Like the the composition is pretty cool and, and just dynamic. But then it's it's like some of the other moments that I, I don't really I'm not too impressed by. Like yeah. a lot of the a lot of the ways that he as as silly as it sounds, like the way that uh Dale Keown draws rocks and stuff, it's it <laughs> I mean I I've seen better, you know. Like yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It, it's nothing it's not a, it's not too impressive and and i think the inking is just um like there's just way too much hatching on on different areas yeah, you know exactly. it, it's it makes it look uh overly busy and and i'm not really into that look yeah some, some of the stuff like when he's drawing explosions the inking there it, it makes sense all the all the hatching there looks looks pretty good yeah but it, it's all the stuff where you're just looking at a close-up of a bruce banner's back or his face and 
yeah, I get that he's old and he's got wrinkles and stuff, but uh, I don't know, man. There's just something about this, this style of art that I, I wish I wish the inker had uh, like toned it down a little bit. Because um, I've seen some of Dale Keown's art uh, in more recent years, and it looks, yeah. I think it looks better than this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even no, I feel the his, same way. Yeah, even like, some of his looking, 90s stuff. Yeah, rereading it now, I wasn't... I can't say that the art was the draw or the pull for me while I was reading it, mm-hmm. but I I still think it was a great comic. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like I think the emotional, like Peter David, like really brings it home for me. There's there's a lot of stuff to unpack in there. Like I there was there's a reason that the comic was called The Last Titan, for example. There's yeah. He talks about how the Hulk. There's this. There's this series of lines in it where he, uh, he talks about the Hulk was the catalyst for the, you know, the superheroes and the atomic age and how he, he, he ties it into like Greek mythology and how, you know, because the Hulk was the catalyst for all of the super people that came out of it, he pays the price as Prometheus. Mm-hmm. And as a result, he, he and he alone is damned to live forever as uh, to pay for the punishment of radiation that you know he that that was the pandora's box that he opened for mankind that led to the age of superheroes i i thought that was some like poetic stuff like i don't know if the hulk was actually the first one but yeah yeah that is a poetic use of of the title i feel like a lot of times people don't put that amount of thought into titling their stories but yeah, yeah, that that's a good point, man. Yeah, it, it's a really good story. I, I think, again, once you get, if you're just looking for a good post-apocalyptic story, it's, yeah, I think the thing that sells it for me is it's just this powerful character drama at the end of the world. And we mentioned earlier, like what what is, if you take the term post-apocalyptic, it, it implies that, there was something that happens after the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And I think that fits for the Hulk because the apocalypse has happened and what does his life look like? What does living look like after after all that? And that's what this story is. Yeah, um, I think it suits uh, that, that term, that genre. And um, it's a powerful character drama. And I've always been, uh, I've always been drawn to the the character conflict between Bruce Banner and the Hulk, you know, there's, there's a lot of like pop psychology stuff that people put in there just because, you know, um, Bruce Banner's powers are activated by his anger. And then over the years they've added several different layers to it, but Mm -hmm. that stuff, that stuff uh, fascinates me, especially when it's well done, you know? Yeah. Just, Just this story about these fractured psyches, and how much they just hate each other and the tragedy of the fact that there's no getting away from each other, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, and especially if you read Hulk comics, like when, if, if this truly is the final Hulk story, that's, that's some sad stuff, man. The Hulk, Bruce Banner never gets his peace and yeah. the Hulk, the Hulk will be the strongest one there is and he lives forever and that's it. Yeah. That, that's it's a pretty uh disheartening thought if you're bruce banner man yeah like it's hopeless 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Zach. Well, I was just going to say, whatever Bruce Banner's been through or whatever he's done, say what you want about him, but I think he deserved better than that. I mean... Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I feel... I feel bad for the guy if, if that's the end that he gets. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty yeah. tragic. Like, even when you look at the last few pages and you – and I know we were maybe not that high on Dale Keon, but just looking at the way that he draws uh, Bruce Banner's face in that moment towards the end where he's beginning to realize, this is it, my final moments are coming. Like, Bruce Banner's face is pitiable, you know? That's true. Yeah. It's super pitiable. You know? And, and, and I, I do got to give uh, Dale Keown credit cause for uh, draw, how he draws the Hulk, though. Because yeah. he draws a really mean looking, tough yeah. Hulk, man. Like when, when you look at his Hulk, I believe that this dude is always angry, you know? Like, I think his Hulk is also, or Dale Keown's Hulk is kind of the one of the iconic versions of the Hulk, too. Yeah. Well, I feel like that's one of the more recognizable versions of the Hulk. Yeah, he was probably the the best choice to to draw that story, especially uh considering his uh, already pre-existing uh partnership with Peter David. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like and there's this scene towards the end, you know, again, this is the moment where um uh, Bruce Banner is realizing what's going on. You can see, you can see in his eyes, you can see the the Hulk behind his eyes mm. and he's getting madder and madder as he realizes what's going on. And as the story progresses, like once you get to the final pages, um, there's a moment where there's a shift. So there's like this two page, uh, like close up of Bruce Banner and the Hulk's face indicating that the shift has taken place, that he's gone from Bruce Banner to the Hulk and you Mm -hmm. see the Hulk in Bruce Banner's eyes. And then in the final uh, half, second half of the page, you see Bruce Banner in the Hulk's eyes. Like just looking at Bruce Banner in there, he's just, I, I think that image was also why I thought or how I came to the conclusion that Bruce Banner becoming the Hulk was a curse for uh, for Bruce Banner for the rest of all time. That, that's mm-hmm. why I came to the conclusion or, or what made me think that um, mm-hmm. uh, Bruce Banner was trapped in his subconscious. Just, just the way that he draws how like pitiable and pathetic he looks in, in the Hulk's eyes in that moment, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, that is my choice. I don't know if you guys have any uh, questions or anything. One, one final question. Did you guys have any uh, honorable mentions? I mean, like other post-apocalyptic stories that we had in mind? Yeah. I, I think um, something that uh, Albert Richard is that I was originally going to talk about Punisher at the end, and then I saw that you had filled it in. <laughs> That's why I ended up picking The Walking Dead. Only because I don't know too many post-apocalyptic comic book stories off the top of my head. And those are the ones that kind of came to mind, you know, almost like right away for me. Yeah. The the other one that uh, immediately came to my mind, but was uh, Why the Last Man. Oh, it's right. Oh. Yes. That, yeah. That's, that's yeah. one of my favorites. I was, I was thinking about it, but then I was like, you know, 
when we do our DC top 25, I'm pretty confident that's going to be on there. So it'll have an entire episode for itself. Yeah. Uh, there are quite a few that I could mention. I mean, there are some that I haven't read yet, but I'm curious about. I think, I think there's a chance that I'll like them, but like East of West. Oh yeah, that's yeah, true. I'm pretty yeah. sure that's a post-apocalyptic story. That's one that I, I got to read too, man. I haven't, yeah. what is, I haven't heard of that one. Jonathan, by Hickman Jonathan Hickman and Nick yeah. Dragata. I I don't know the I don't know the, what it is or the synopsis. I don't really know what it is either. All I know is it's a post-apocalyptic story. Okay. Yeah. Some kind of a crazy post-apocalyptic western, I think. Neo western. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of cool. Since yeah. yeah. Jonathan Hickman, I'll, I'm going to check it out. Um, yeah. Another one that I was going to mention, like I ha- I I almost have all the issues. I'm still missing one issue, but um. I, well, I don't know if it's so much a post-apocalyptic as it is dystopian, but Low by Rick Remender. Oh, yeah, was, and uh, Greg Tuccini. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, uh, that one is about a world where the sun has... It hasn't gone supernova, but it's expanded to the point where uh, it's so hot that all the people of on the surface of the Earth have to live under the water in order to survive Hmm. yeah that that's that's all i really know about it but hey it's rick remender so i'm about that yeah man (laughs) totally yeah um that's gotta be like millions of years in the future then yeah yeah uh and the final one that i that i would mention but i'm probably i picked it as my western was old man logan (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well that's more dystopian i guess so Never mind. that's more dystopian anyways okay yeah that's good stuff um for me one other thing that did come to mind was uh that series suiciders oh um, yeah 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 i i i remember a couple of the things that stood out to me most i mean obviously the art i think it was Lieber mayhall who worked on that um, yeah i think he wrote um, andrew it Oh, he did. Okay, because I was yeah. thinking, I'm like, man, I remember the artist. But I can't remember who drew it for some reason. Okay, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just remember that really standing out to me. And then uh, the world, basically. Uh, well, I guess I guess the guy is a fighter, and they have these these. I'm trying to think of how to describe it. Not exactly like UFC matches. It's almost like a Mad Max type thing. Like there's armor and there's like yeah. Like some kind of a Mad Max gladiator type of fight. Yeah, yeah, just like super uh, graphic, like combat sequences and stuff. And I don't know, I'm kind of about that. Like the cool factor was pretty high. And then also the the character progression as well, though. I mean, um, it's it's not it's not a story that you'll you'll pick it up and be like, man, like I've never read anything like this before in my life. And you know, it's just something so different. But it is entertaining, and it is um, you see that this is a multifaceted character. There's different sides to him, and you know he has his own motivation for doing things. And the story becomes more about, I think, why he does what he does rather than him just like beating people to a pulp the entire time. So I did appreciate that. There's also, you know, Age of Apocalypse. Ooh. Uh... 
That's how you know that we're at the end of our episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's an honorable mention purely because it's literally this, the name is tongue in cheek. It's Age of Apocalypse. It's post apocalyptic. <laughs> <laughs> that is, I, 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 I can't argue with that kind of logic. <laughs> it does meet. The I have. It, I have never read Age of Apocalypse, and I never intend to do so unless I'm super <laughs> bored and just need to understand why such a thing would exist. You never but, read that when you were a kid. No, I didn't read it when I was a kid. I only. I think I only read um, the early X Men stuff, and then occasional things here and there. Um, like as a, as a kid, I thought Wolverine and Gambit were cool, so I got those and read them. And I grew up and read them again. I'm like this is bad that is interesting <laughs> i never would have thought that you thought gambit was cool i was kidding i thought I never, was cool. you know he was he was he's like a, a, uh he's got he's the a, accent the charm he's got that stick and he's he's got yeah. that yeah <laughs> i i i learned something about you today shanus i did <laughs> yeah. not know that you must have been really different when you were a kid shanus <laughs> probably hey, hey shanus it's okay it's okay i'm in that camp too i thought he was cool for a bit too just because of the powers. I mean, if you can touch something and blow it up to like an 11 or 12 year old kid, that seems kind of cool. Well, um, also, I think like the way they wrote his character, like like superficially cavalier was kind of like nice. Like, like the, like, he was almost like, like you could say a French cowboy in some sense. <laughs> he was Cajun. <laughs> I know. Pick a like, card, mon ami. Guarantee we have some jambalaya. He's like the John West cowboy character walks in, does some stuff, you know, but doesn't, but on the surface doesn't ever seem to really, really care. I have some crawfish frog leg stew for you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, besides Age of Apocalypse, I did... I didn't. I didn't read that one. Not completely. I read a couple issues, but I did read Executioner's Song when I was a kid. I did read that. <laughs> I read. I read a couple of those. I didn't read. I read. I read the whole thing because as a kid, I, 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 I couldn't keep up with trying to buy every single X Men issue. They jumped around to to cover this whole like crossover event. And that that was a thing that actually like made it hard as a kid to read comics, which is a whole other topic. Was just like. Just like I'm like, it makes it hard I, as an adult to read comics. Well, <laughs> Good point. Yes. <laughs> One of these days we they haven't just... stopped doing that. <laughs> yeah, true that. True yeah. that. We could have an episode where we just talk about X Men crossover events. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they stopped doing that, but they still did it in the early 2000s, like um, the Messiah story, and like there are a lot of X Men events where they would cross over to the different titles still. Mm-hmm. I mean, they yeah. still do that now, I think. Like, everything's got some sort of offshoot or a spinoff to something else where... Well, I mean, like, you like, had to buy each issue more. of a different yeah. title to continue that particular, like, crossover event. Um, yeah. I think it was, like, uh, Messiah War. Is that, I think it was, is that what it was? Messiah... Yeah, that was Messiah part Complex. of... There was a Messiah Complex, but I think there was a Messiah War after that. And it was, I like, think, it was, like... I think it was X-Men Legacy, Uncanny... Cable, or those just I was new like mutants, or like, not new mutants, new X Men, new X Men. I was like, oh, yeah. they're doing this thing again. I'm like, uh. nostalgia is a big money making machine, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, we should just blow it all up. 
<laughs> like in the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> but who will tell about our post-apocalypse tale? Uh, I will. I draw comics, so uh, I'll <laughs> yeah. volunteer for that. <laughs> Zach, Zach will tell the story of what happens when four guys who like to talk about comics can no longer talk about comics. That's our apocalypse scenario. Uh, <laughs> he will be our bard. It'll, yeah. be, it'll, be, it'll be 22 pages of silence. <laughs> just 22 pages of grown men weeping. <laughs> <laughs> no, not weeping, just, just silence. It'll be that sad. At the end, like the final scene, the final page, Albert will be sitting on a rooftop alone, watching the sunset, and he'll say, Albert feels cold. <laughs> well done well done well let's uh wrap things up thank you guys thank you shanis and zach for joining us on this discussion yeah it was my pleasure thanks for inviting me yeah thanks for having me on yeah always good talking always with you fun guys. having you guys um this was another guttertastic episode <laughs> and uh i look forward to the next round of recommendations for whatever category is coming up next. Sweet. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for being there.